When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I am... A wrestling fan. I, I feel silly saying that on the one hand because I don't really watch it that often. Uh, I, and I, when I do turn it on, I really don't know who anybody is. You know, I'm not really up to date unless they're older wrestlers or managed by older wrestlers. I really don't know who most of the characters are that populate the current world of pro wrestling. But I still, cons- <laughs> I still consider very excited for uh, Ric Flair's forthcoming. Last match. I'm sure I'm setting myself up to be disappointed, but so be it. But I still consider myself a uh, pro wrestling fan because of how often I end up thinking about it and how often I research it and how often I read about the era of pro wrestling that I was really into, which is basically, I'll say, from 1980 to the 2001. That's really the era that I'm... And that's a, a pretty wide swath of, of wrestling history. But anyway, the reason this comes up is because one thing that I doubt any of you remember is something, it was a very limited um, promotion that WCW used to do. Once it was its own pay-per-view, but other times it was part of other pay-per-views. It was called the Lethal Lottery. Matt Blaze, you're a wrestling fan. Do you remember the Lethal Lottery at all? Battle Bowl, the Lethal Lottery? Actually, I don't. You don't? No one remembers this. Okay. No one remembers this. In fact, it's one of those things where I almost think it only happened in my imagination because I've tried to talk with people about it. Nobody remembers this. So what the Lethal Lottery was, it was the neatest thing in the world. It was really, really fun. Where a whole bunch of wrestlers, including wrestlers that are feuding with one another, they enter into a tag team tournament without knowing who their partner is going to be. And so you end up with a partner that you could be friends with. You end up with a partner that you could be feuding with. And then those two guys are partnered for the tournament. And then it goes into a a battle bowl thing towards the end. And that's kind of a similar uh, battle royal kind of a deal. But it was really neat. And what I loved about it is, it injected an element of unpredictability into what would happen. You didn't know who was going to be wrestling who. You didn't know who was going to be uh, partnered with who. It was fun. It was unpredictable. And I'll be honest, one of the things that I have always liked most about talk radio is talk radio when it's unpredictable. It's one of the reasons I enjoy doing Ask Frank anything or, or or just hours that are totally unpredictable. That was the most fun thing about the Bob Grant show back in the day. You listen to the Bob Grant show. You didn't know who, what he was going to say. Howard Stern, same thing. 
You didn't know what he, they, these guys were going to say. You didn't know who was going to call. You didn't know what they would say to a caller. And it was unpredictable. It was wild. It was really interesting. So I always try to, to the extent that you can do this, I always try to plan for a little unpredictability in the course of any given radio show. Now, obviously, you can only plan for so much unpredictability, but it occurred to me today, I was giving a great deal of thought to what we would talk about first. Because if you read any good talk radio producing book, they say you always put your best stuff first. And I was kind of all over the place about what we should do as our, our first subject today. And I've narrowed it down to three. So, Matt Blaze, I'm going to ask you, without knowing what these three options are, pick A, B, or C, and that will determine what we talk about for the next 10 minutes. It's like, mate, let's make a deal. Exactly. Pick it behind the door. Exactly. What do you like? Um, let's always go with C. C. Breast milk it is. All right. A, Can't uh, go wrong with a, breast milk. Exactly. And look, there was, a, see, I had all these articles pulled up, depending on which direction Matt Blaze was going to go. Oh, right. I picked the right one. Yeah. Well, what a, what a breast milk it is. Okay. So obviously everybody knows that we've been experiencing this uh, baby formula shortage. And I, I, this is evidently much more pronounced now because there are fewer women breastfeeding. Um, it's very interesting. Headline in the Wall Street Journal two days ago, uh, baby formula shortage worsened by drop in breastfeeding rates. COVID-19 restrictions, pandemic disruptions caused a shift in how parents feed their babies. So evidently one of the contributing factors in this U.S. baby formula shortage is a significant shift in breastfeeding. Since 2020, listen to these numbers, since 2020, the share of the breastfed one-year-olds has plummeted from an estimated 34% to an estimated 14% this year. Now, that's pretty significant. That's according to surveys by Demographic Intelligence, which is a, a forecasting firm that specializes in births and all sorts of things like that. Government officials and formula manufacturers, they're working to address this nationwide shortage that has resulted, I can tell you as the as the father of a six-month-old, it's resulted in all sorts of empty shelves. And we've heard a great deal about what's caused this. We did a whole half hour with Matt Stoller on that. Pandemic-related supply chains, the recall by Abbott, closing of one of the, uh, the Abbott factories. But one of the things that I haven't heard many people talk about until this Wall Street Journal article is the increase in demand for formula because of fewer women breastfeeding. So this is pretty interesting, I find. After these COVID restrictions were introduced in March of 2020, many new mothers had shorter hospital stays and were discharged before their milk had come in or their baby had latched successfully to their breast. 
So some infants weren't given skin-to-skin contact with their mothers after birth because of concerns about COVID transmission. Are you aware of that? I, I mean, it makes sense reading about it, but I didn't know this. So some lactation consultants were furloughed. Others were redeployed or designated non-essential personnel. Parents who want to breastfeed need a, as as Diane Spatz, a professor of perinatal nursing at the University of Pennsylvania, told the Wall Street Journal, she's also a nurse scientist, she said they need a strong network, a strong support network. And they weren't getting that during the pandemic. So amazingly, this pandemic and the restrictions surrounding the pandemic may have actually led to a significant, I mean, when you're talking 34% to 14%, that's not a minor decline. This is a significant decline in breastfeeding. Um, The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends breastfeeding exclusively for the baby's first six months, then continuing to breastfeed while introducing complementary foods until the baby is, you know, a year old or so. Some families can't breastfeed their children. Others choose not to. And infant formula is the only safe alternative to human breast milk for babies under a year old. That's what the health officials say. So breastfeeding rates in this country were at their lowest point in, Matt Blaze, any idea when breastfeeding rates were at their lowest? 50s? No, no, no. 70s, 70s. When many doctors told parents that formula was the best food for babies. Isn't it interesting how conventional wisdom sort of gets turned on its side? These same parenting experts, not the same ones, obviously, but the the, the people in the same jobs that were telling people this is the expert advice. This is the best thing you could do for their baby in the 70s. They're now saying the same thing about breastfeeding. So who knows what they're going to be saying 50 years from now? Probably by then oat milk will be the best thing that uh, experts recommend for your baby. So then a movement to promote breastfeeding, along with growing research showing the benefits of breastfeeding over formula, led to a decades-long increase in breastfeeding. The share of one-year-olds who are fed with at least some breast milk climbed from 16% in 2001 to, ready for this, 36% 36% in 2017. It plateaued in 2018 and 2019. And then since the pandemic, it has just dropped like a rock. So now that I'm hesitant to say this, but now that by and large society is reopened, knock on wood, uh, there's nothing wood around here. Knock on my brain. Um, now that society is by and large reopened, And now that things are getting back to some semblance of normalcy, I'm wondering, do you think breastfeeding rates are going to go back to where they were four or five years ago? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-WABC. Because that's pretty wild to have only 16% of one-year-olds breastfeeding in 2001 to 36% of them breastfeeding in 2017. And now the numbers are going the other way. And not surprisingly, you remember the old Rush Limbaugh joke, right? Um, the The recent drop in breastfeeding has been particularly steep among 
lower-income families, and people of color. So the percentage of breastfed babies fell sharply in 2020. And since then, the share of breastfed babies um, has risen a little bit, but it has not returned to anywhere near pre-pandemic levels. I'm also wondering, do you think we'd be experiencing this same baby formula shortage without the increase in demand for baby formula? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Because on the one hand, you think of it as almost counterintuitive. The pandemic, if you were a breastfeeding family, let's say, the pandemic wasn't a barrier to breastfeeding. You didn't have to go to the store. You didn't have to do anything. You just whipped out a breast and fed your baby. But for some, for some, it offered advantages, allowing mothers to nurse for longer because they're working from home. So you'd think that would lead to breastfeeding rates going up. But it didn't. Other families found workarounds to these restrictions, like uh, talking with experienced relatives on video calls, scheduling virtual appointments with lactation consultants, and the expansion of insurance coverage for telehealth visits might have made lactation consultants accessible to more families than before the pandemic. But still, evidently, the pandemic placed a lot of burdens on parents. And now, as the expression goes... The chickens are coming home to roost. Curious if you have a thought on the uptick in breastfeeding over the course of the last 20 years and then the rapid decline on breastfeeding over the last two years. Where do you think we're headed going forward? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what we have coming up. Jason Tesoro is going to be here. He is uh, the author of a wonderful book that I have purchased, I believe, for both of my brothers, as well as uh, countless men and young men, especially that I've met over the years, called The Modern Gentleman. It's a wonderful book. It's basically a handbook on how to be a gentleman. And it's, it's about 18 years old, maybe more, maybe 20 years old. But I think it's even more relevant today than ever. And I'm not sure why it occurred to me to look up who wrote that book and to see if he'd join me on the radio yesterday. But, you know, I think it goes to some extent to the conversation Dominic was having and that caller, Rob, that called in. You get the sense that a lot of men these days, particularly a lot of young men, they just seem adrift. They seem as if they have no guide. And I think this book is a good one. It's fun, by the way. It's a fun book. It's mostly a uh, humorous look at being a gentleman. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have a ton of practical advice. So we're going to get into that with Jason Tesoro in about 15 minutes. And uh, then one of my favorite body language experts with a wealth of information and a wealth of knowledge on the subject of body language is Tanya Ryman. She's going to join me around 4.30. But I want to talk with you about the remarkable decline in breastfeeding we've seen over the last three years. Give me a call. 800-848-9222-1234. Five open lines. Let me begin with Johnny in Garden City. Hello, Johnny. Johnny, I got you. Yeah. Yeah, I got you now. Go ahead. 
Okay, quick thing. So during the height of the uh, the COVID uh, crisis we had, there was a big demand. People were uh, obviously at home. They started to make bread, and there's a big shortage of flour and yeast, and all these demand was for that. So people get back to basically when they're confronted with these restrictions. And I think this will actually make people more aware. They just can't rely on manufacturing, obviously, of these of these products for take care of the children. And I think it's going to go back to more the natural way. The way it was before that, you know, you know obviously uh, these formulas will be actually back on the shelf. But I think people realize you've got to, you know, go back to the old way of doing things because, if you know, we get confronted with shortages, you're stuck and you got to do something and you see your child suffers. So, so you think, better. you think yeah, that after this pandemic, after the world's back to normal, we'll see the same uptick in breast milk in breastfeeding that we did previously? I believe so. Quick thing too, my mom, I'm, I'm just turned 60. My mom, she said when she, when she, most middle she said when I was born, it was a period of time when they would, they would cast aspersion on women who, who were breastfed. It was, they right. thought it was for cave women. Right. And she said that I was in the hospital. There was a woman next to her was, you know, from that more American style. And she was suffering from fevers because she was taking pills to stop the breast milk from uh, producing. And she said, you know, I was breastfeeding you because that's all I was learned to you know, taught to do with children, and that was a period of time that they were looked upon, you know, front upon as a you know, as, you know, breastfeeding was not really the right thing to do for that period of time. But now, you know, it's uh, it became more relevant to the idea is an important bond for children and a nutritional part. Well, and as well. and there's a lot of environmental benefits as well. Isn't it funny yeah. how, uh, as I said before, conventional wisdom just seems to constantly get turned on its head, and the very same yeah. experts that say one thing one year say uh, totally opposite the next year. Thanks for the call, Johnny. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I wasn't breastfed either. All three of my siblings, who are technically half-siblings, we have the same father, different mothers, all three of them were breastfed. I never was. I wasn't breastfed. But, um, you know, I think, who knows how smart I would have been if I had been breastfed, you know? Mom, if you're listening, what can I tell you? Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. Yeah, Frankie. How you doing? Good. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, we're, we're going to these crazy times. There's no uh, formula, baby formula. I'm going right now to Rite Aid. The shelves are empty. There's a lot of – you go into any supermarket now, things are missing. So I, I think there's something wrong with the logistics. The government has to get professionals to start moving these products into the – you know, there's something is not moving like it should be. You know, we're in America today, and we, we don't even have baby formula. Which is a necessity. It's like unheard of. We, we, you know. So, um, if it's going to get worse or better, I think it depends on the logistics of the who they put in there. Well, I, mean, I, I think that Pete, Pete Buttigieg right now who's running it. Um, I think um, he's running the whole. But I think they need much more manpower. There's a lot of. There's a lot of. Um, you know, see these containers are sitting on the in China, and then you have containers are stuck in the. That the whole logistics have, have to really start picking up, and uh, I, scary, scary times. Yeah, and again, thank you, Simon, and good luck in your hunt for baby formula. My interest in discussing this was less of a public policy issue and more of a cultural issue. I, I'm, I think it was just so – oh, I guess it is a public policy issue, right? Because without these lockdowns that took place as a result of COVID – would we have seen, and, and without the restrictions that accompanied these lockdowns, would we have seen the resultant decline in breastfeeding? I, I think probably not. But I'm kind of just curious about where we are culturally, culturally from this point in, because we've seen some things 
that changed during the pandemic and they don't seem to be going back to normal. I guess the most obvious uh, observation is people working from home. Not a whole bunch of people worked from home, at least not in widespread numbers before the pandemic. Now, now the rarity is the people that go into work every day. So I'm wondering if breastfeeding and the decline in breastfeeding will be one of those things that has been permanently changed by this lockdown and the pandemic, or if it's something that is going to go back to normal when the world goes back to normal. And what is normal, right? So that word gets thrown around. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. We're on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And on uh, Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. Uh, you can also email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, that's uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, by the way, I did send out an email newsletter yesterday uh, just promoting what was coming up on the show and everything and some of the recent content we've been doing and some of the stuff that I've been up to personally. Unfortunately, I you know, was in such a rush. I don't know how I made such a careless mistake. I sent it from an old email address, which I no longer have access to. So I was able to send it from there, but I'm not able to receive emails from there. So anybody that responded to the email uh, blast that I sent out yesterday to that email, I didn't see your response. So if you want to email me in response to that email, particularly on the subject of looking for kidneys. We have a lot of listeners that are looking for kidneys, and we're trying to get as many of them kidneys as possible. Uh, We have one gentleman who has stepped up already in touch with him, and uh, we're working on getting kidneys for everybody that listens to this show. Even if they don't need a kidney yet, we're working on getting them a kidney anyway. So if you want to email me, the best way to do that is frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And by the way, if you want to be added to my email list, just email me there. And I'll add you to my email list so whenever we put something out there, we will we will make sure to include you. Corey is in Palm Bay, Florida. Hello, Corey. Hey, Frank. Um, I think this is this may be something like a first world American issue to some extent. Uh, and everyone I know from Russia or overseas they're, they breastfeed children, and maybe we just have scientists, doctors trying to figure out better ways than the natural way, which has led to this. Well, I, I'm not sure I follow, Corey. Uh, kind of like Einstein challenging Newton's laws of physics. Um, they work here. They don't work there. Uh, if you go to, you know, out of the states out of you know uh the first world every you know, they're going to breastfeed their children they there's no choice now here people are given a choice maybe do, i don't know doctors are trying to figure out a way that's better i i don't understand how that could be better well the doctors some people but possibly. The, the doctors are recommending breastfeeding though Right, but there has to be some reason why people have been going to formula. 
Well, the theory is, at least in this Wall Street Journal article, that it's a result of all the things that I mentioned during the pandemic, Um, the lactation consultants and the others being labeled as non-essential personnel, uh, the reduction in hospital time uh, where a lot of that those skin to skin visits would generally happen. And uh, I mean, that is basically what a lot of folks are, are saying. Uh, but thanks for the call, Corey. Appreciate it. 800-848-WABC. If you want to comment, um, you can also, as I said, find me on Twitter at Frank Moreno. Very excited that uh, Jason Tesoro is going to be here in just a minute. Uh, he is the author of The Modern Gentleman and a triple threat writer, photojournalist, sommelier, and uh, a really just fascinating guy in general. You're not going to want to miss this discussion. Jason Tesoro joins me straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. A book that I really enjoy. I think I might even, might even own two copies of it. It has a proud place on my bookshelf, and it is always, whenever I am looking for a gift to give a man, particularly a young man, I always give them the book The Modern Gentleman. Now, it's very amusing it's written in a very entertaining manner. But essentially what this book is, it's a handbook. It's a guide to essential manners, savvy, and vice. And I don't know what made me think about it today, but I said, let me see if I can reach out to the fellow that wrote this book and learn a little bit about him. Turns out this fella is just as interesting as the book that he wrote, and I am thrilled that he's agreed to stay up with us late on the radio today. Jason Tesoro is a writer, photojournalist, sommelier, and, yes, indeed, the author of the book, The Modern Gentleman. Jason, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Frank. Jason, what gave you the idea to write a book like the one that you did, The Modern Gentleman? First of all, was this your idea or was this a, a publisher's idea or something? No, this uh, this was a book that I needed to read, and at the time it didn't exist. So we're let's rewind the clock back. Uh, it's 2002, and the book was first published. It's been through subsequent printings and editions, but back in 2002, when the book came out, that was the culmination of nearly 10 years of, of work, five years of real writing, but. So let's go back now. It's the late 90s. Remember what was going on back then with like the neo cigar craze and people started swing dancing again. And it was just the hint of the cocktail revolution. And at that time, I was studying to be a sommelier. I had made this pact with myself at 25 that by 30, I would either be a published author or a sommelier. So there I was. 
uh, going through the court of master sommeliers. I'm studying booze, wine, spirits, cigars. My wife called it the Vice Academy. And meanwhile, I'm, I'm trying to up my game myself. But the only resources out there are like Amy Vanderbilt's Guide to Etiquette. And I didn't really need to know how to dress for a tea party or like, you know, how to wear, how to iron my morning coat. I needed some real world stuff. Yeah, at at 25, I didn't have the kind of scratch to be like, how should I address my valet in front of the queen? <laughs> and the the guidebooks of the day were written in a response to the wealthy codifying what the social rules should be. So now that I'm I'm diving into how do I want to behave? How do I want to treat my friends? How do I want to host a gathering? How do I want to buy gifts for a soiree? for a happening? How do I want to send correspondence? I started writing it myself. I'm like, well, these are the situations I'm finding myself in. And there's a code of behavior. There's a code of how to properly skinny dip. You know, I came to learn while I was in wine school, I was running the wine program at this amazing restaurant in Atlanta. And we would finish up and it was the dead of summer in the ATL. And we'd the ditch our aprons, and we'd grab extra bottles of wine, and we'd hop the fence at the Hampton Inn, and we'd all end up in the pool. And there'd be every now and again the one fool idiot guy who couldn't keep his hands and his wits about him, and we would toss him out. And over the course of that summer, we came to understand that skinny dipping meant that there were certain customs that had to be followed and presumptions that should and should not be made. So I wrote those down, and I find myself in an elevator codifying what elevator etiquette or jukebox etiquette. Well, let, well, let, me, pa- let, let me get you to pause on, on that one, if I can, Jason. Now, I understand your experience as a sommelier, what makes you an authority when it comes to booze and things that accompany booze like cigars. You explained how you became an authority on skinny dipping etiquette, but things like elevator etiquette, for example. What makes you an authority on that? Why should people listen to you when it comes to elevator etiquette? You know, I'm the kind of person who is constantly on input mode. I'm, I'm recording as a writer, as an interviewer like you. You know, I'm, I'm looking observationally at this at this moment. So when I found myself approaching an elevator, you know, I always had a notebook in my back pocket. This was long before the digital age. And I would watch just how do people behave and what are ways if we want to tinker with the social customs. I bet you'd know pretty quickly how to make people feel uncomfortable. And the mm. opposite side of that is how can I put people at ease? How could I make that two-and-a-half-minute ride, this sliver of a moment of a day, actually turn into something enjoyable? Is there a way to lift spirits? Is there a way to engage? Is there a way that by the time the doors open back at the lobby, people are laughing or smiling or being like, you know, almost forgetting to step out because we're still engaged in a moment. Instead of saying that an elevator is a pause from life, like this is your life happening just in time and space vertically, right? So I started looking through that lens and I became an expert simply because while everyone else was kind of droning on, that was a chance to stare at your newspaper. It was a chance to stand looking at the numbers I chose to engage with that moment and watch the way people responded, 
and uh, toggle the knobs of social engagement to see love what it. made people love it. But no, that is uh, terrific. Now, I, I saw in researching you that there was this magazine, uh, I don't even really know if it got off the ground, called The Modern Gent. And there's a website, The Modern Gent. Did The Modern Gentleman actually take the form of a magazine at one point? You know, the uh, modern gentleman. Early on, my uh, my attorneys wanted to protect the intellectual property of the content, and the title, mm. but the title itself was too. I'm making air quotes here. Common to protect. <laughs> sure. So there are actually a lot of modern gentleman things out there, which my would get my attorney uh, irked. And for me, I was like, look, if this universe expands, having more modern gents is a good thing. It may be bad for the intellectual property of protecting it, but it's great that more and more people want to express that part of themselves. So there are other modern gentlemen. There's only one book series, but there are other uh, expressions of, of that term, and I can't know them all. I can just hope that anyone who's chosen to get behind that moniker can also uh, express the spirit of it and not simply the brand of it. Got it. Okay. Makes sense to me. Now, uh, the practical advice for the people, but especially the men listening to us right now. By the way, if people just tuning in, we're talking with Jason Tesoro. He is a writer, photojournalist, sommelier, and the author of the Modern Gentleman book series. Give us a few uh, modern gentleman tips. You've alluded to your history as a sommelier. Let's start with drinking, whether we're doing wine or cocktails. Um, I don't have the book in front of me, but one of the things that I think I'm remembering um, about drinking is how to order a cocktail. How do you order, as a proper gentleman, a cocktail? So, uh Last month, I was in Kentucky. I hosted a series of events for Derby Week, which I highly recommend, by the way. It is a gentleman's holiday to the nth degree, the Kentucky Derby. So after uh, days of, of racing and fun, you know, the, the main event is Saturday, but there are events happening all through the week. And bars in Kentucky and Louisville stay open until 4 so there are a lot of opportunities to order a drink well after the sensible hours, and you know you're into the other side of midnight, right. and the rules are a little more flexible after midnight, right? So here I find myself at one, at two, at three a.m. ordering a drink and watching the way other people order a drink. So I come sliding into a bar uh, around three. And I go up and like my typical drink for feeling out a bartender is a proper daiquiri. So I keep that in my back pocket when I feel like having a crisp drink, but I'm also confident that whoever's behind the bar knows what they're doing. Well, 3 a.m. is not the time for a proper daiquiri or even an (laughs) improper daiquiri, right? It's a time for a two-ingredient drink. It's a great time for a G&T. It's a great time for a tequila, a mezcal, neat, around the rock. So part of the social contract of ordering a drink is not you showing off how much you know or think you know and trying to stump the bartender. It's reading the room. It's looking at the mood and mode. Am I wearing... Uh, a pair of sandals? Am I wearing a pair of dress shoes? Am I in cowboy boots? 
What's the music like? If I'm in a, a rock and roll and a honky tonk, you know, this is a great place for a cold beer or, or give me a very simple drink, but I'm not ordering a seven layer Pousse Cafe. <laughs> so part of it is what am I thirsty for? Certainly. But the other is think of your drink as an accessory in the space. And my jacket isn't finished without a pocket square. So if your left hand isn't finished without a concoction, what's the appropriate thing? Am I looking for the the cute little uh, drink umbrella because I'm standing at the edge of a beach bar overlooking a band? Or am I standing there surrounded like body to body with people in a, in a hot dance club where the bartender has got like 9.2 seconds to prepare a drink. And I've already got a crisp $20 bill and an order at my lips. So you are participating in a conversation and you need to say the appropriate thing. Uh, now, it makes sense to me. And uh, one piece of advice that I always reiterate that I learned from your book is if you see a bar is crowded and people are already waiting five or six uh, for, for deep for a drink, that's also not the time to be ordering something that's complicated and takes a long time to make because you meet a, make a lot of enemies quickly. One aspect of culture that I think people experience every day, but they don't necessarily think about there being a gentlemanly way to handle it, is driving. But you write there are a couple of things that a gentleman should do as a driver. What is that? Oh, my gosh. My, my favorite thing to engage in as a driver is the use of the horn. <laughs> and the, the only negative I have, my, my wife bought a, a Tesla over the, over the shutdown, and there weren't too many people on the road. So it took until very recently for us to get back into traffic situations. Elon Musk forgot to make the Tesla so that you could use the horn with that little bit of percussion. And you're in Staten Island. Everyone from Jersey, I was born in Patterson. Around me, everyone used the horn deftly and being able to communicate. There's a big difference from, hey, see you later, Grandma, boop, 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 and, you know, you are stuck at a green light and no one's going. <laughs> so using your horn to communicate, uh, the Tesla only has one tone. There is no, like, hey, I see you on the corner, Johnny. It's, so like it's, it's a kind of it's annoying. Um, so using your horn. Secondly, like for me, driving uh i feel like most people in the in the south are driving like they got no place to go and driving with some meaningfulness and purposefulness especially when everyone else seems to be lollygagging and staring at their phones uh i used to drive for for sport and pleasure now i feel like i'm driving from within an inch of my life to stay safe <laughs> out there it's a different scene from 20 years ago when the distractions were, were simply the, the cool T-top next to you and the tunes blaring. Um, the gentlemanliness of driving has definitely shifted. Um, I will say one fast way to identify yourself as a non-gent is to pull up at the toll booth and not know what the bleep to do. <laughs> well, what about something as simple as table manners? You know, one of the one of the things that I was raised to do is that if there was a lady at the table and she's getting up or sitting down, you stand up. But now I find that I'm I'm the odd man out when I stand up when a lady sits or sit or or stand or stands up and leaves the table, and now everyone looks at me like I'm a strange person. Person. What are you supposed to do as a modern 21st century gentleman? 
Ah, now you're getting to the crux of things, Frank. So etiquette is a, a code of rules that's evolved, and it's fluid. And just like our language is changing, right, your vocabulary, I'm 50, and my vocabulary at, at 50 is richer than it was at 15. Sure. But it's also been truncated because I have to adjust my language for the people around me. When I was the youngest man in the room, I was constantly reaching for richer vocabulary. Now, I mind, uh, I made an invitation for my, one of my teens graduating high school. And instead of saying, respondez, s'il vous plaît, I put yay, nay, your response, and I put an email address. The codes of etiquette have gone through these ebbs and flows depending upon where society was at the time. And it means that there have been zeniths and there have been naders in culture. And I would say that where we are in, in culture and civilization right now is one of those dips. And it's a time when people are, are struggling and are trying to figure out life in a way that it can feel kind of tone deaf to want to wrap someone across the knuckles for being a heathen at table, when in truth, like what's going on behind the scenes has uh, a higher difficulty level than whether or not I know how to use uh, my escargot tongue. Mm -hmm. So the, the rules have necessarily slipped. And I've, I've battled this for the past two or three years because while I've made my career uh, not only understanding these rules and codifying them and helping teach other young gents, I've also had to realize that now is not the time for us to reinforce some of these rules. However, if you and I don't keep the torch lit right. for civility and don't teach a new generation on how they should alight from the table, how will they find these modes in the future? And what does it mean overall? Like, it, if we're in the middle of a war, is that time to be like, oh, pardon me, milady, let me dust off right. your seat on the tank, right? Like, we, we know the gender fluidity and the Me Too movement has led to changes in our social custom with men and women kissing socially. It's actually also led to the way that I kiss men. I've kissed a lot more men on the cheek in the past six months as people are coming out. And we know that whether you're gay or straight, that one way that men can greet each other is that like sort of Italian kiss on the cheek. And this is very different from how things were. Well, that's why the rules are evolving. That's why they're written in non-indelible ink, because they're meant to evolve and grow. And yes, I would like, I have five children. I have three boys ranging from nine to 18. And I would love for them to be superlatives at table. But the truth is, I've really tried to reinforce more their character so that they recognize on how to be in conversation and how to be in relationship as opposed to following by the letter of the law. This is what daddy said you had to do mm. to be a gentle table. And as long as they are excellent house guests and respectful of their hosts, whether or not they chew with their mouth open 0.1% of the time or grab the right piece of silver – uh, they're going to be forgiven because they're just good eggs. Well, uh, that's certainly, I guess, the most important thing that any of us could hope to be, right? Uh, but 
What you mentioned male-female relations and the evolving nature of courtship. What about dating? Uh, let's say you're uh, looking to court a lady. Uh, m- maybe it's somebody that you've been introduced to from a mutual friend, or maybe it's someone that you meet at a bar or court a fella, by the way, uh, because, as you mentioned, sexual uh, sexual fluidity and gender fluidity is all the rage these days. What is the proper and uh, respectful way, yet the effective way, for a modern gentleman to pursue courtship? Ooh, so I've been fortunate enough to um, be consulted by um, many gents in the past couple of years as the rules have really changed, mm. right? And in COVID, uh, it has changed the courtship rituals and having to date uh, digitally and then uh, move at a much slower pace. How does one express their ardor? So these ongoing conversations I have with the men for, for whom I consult and one of the big things that comes up is how do you make that leap from we started dating digitally, whether it's through an app or just meeting through one of the platforms? How do you make the leap from there to actually dating? And and we've lost a lot of that organic side of, hey, we met at an outing. We met at a function. We met organically right. as a friend of a friend. So you have to take this uh, this synthetic piece of profiles have been linked up by algorithm and convert that into something that nature would have put in front of us inevitably, right? So the the first tip there is you still have to lead with your authenticity. It's very tempting and you have the tools in front of you to Photoshop not only your picture, but your persona. I think it's very tempting for people to lead with what they want to be as opposed to who they are. And the biggest thing that I tell gents is they're going to find out who you are anyway. Why are we false advertising? Mm. So you you can lead with a, a polished version of yourself. Think of the difference between you attending a wedding in your PJs and you attending in your finest bespoke suit. So you are allowed, of, of course, to dress it up and, and polish off some of the rough edges, but you're not allowed to go as a fundamentally different person than who you really are because you think that'll be more alluring to someone you're dating. So that's number one is being a, re- a truthful representation of who you are. Secondly, when you are converting from the digital to the in-person You have to think not just about how you want to present, but think about putting someone else at ease. It it is now a time of fear. People are afraid of meeting someone new. They have someone queued up, hey, can you call me like 30 minutes into the date? Let's have a, a, a safe word about whether or not you're okay. Let's meet in a public space. All of these things are at play because people are feeling uncomfortable. I don't know if I can trust a stranger. I don't know if I can believe that they're who they say they are. So how can I put them at ease? And finding a way to use courtship to get someone into their pleasure center, this becomes your job in courtship. You should take this as your number one priority is to make them feel comfortable, not you in the best possible light. Ooh, I'm going to arrive early. I'm going to get the lay of the land. I'm going to get to know the server or the bartender. I'm going to look over the menu. I'm going to do a little pregame and find out are are there any kind of food allergies are there any clues from their profile that would let me know 
you know, they've traveled to Italy. Let me find a dish. Here's cacio a pepe as on the menu. Show that you are paying attention and not simply thinking about how to put you in the best light, but mm-hmm. how to actually make the other person feel good in their own skin. No, it's uh, great advice. I-, I could talk to you about this stuff all day, and I hope you'll come back. But there's two final areas I want to explore with you before you get out of here. One has to do with uh, picking your brain as a sommelier. What if you want to look the part of a wine expert, but you really don't know where to begin? What's a a pro tip that can help an amateur look for and explore different things in wine, or at least look like they know what they're doing when it comes time for them to be the person that gets to sample the wine before everybody gets a full glass poured for them? Ah, nice. Excellent. So, you know, that ritual is actually rooted in practicum. When the server brings you the bottle, uh, first thing I always do is I put my hand on the bottle. And it's a great way to look Mm. like you know what you're doing because, (laughs) in in fact, it means you do. And you're feeling for the temperature, especially uh, on the the eve of summer here, feeling the wine to make sure that the reds have been properly cellared and are not too hot. And also to assure that your whites aren't bracingly cold. Mm. And most restaurants over-chill their whites and under-chill their reds. So you put your hand on the bottle as a way of confirming that this wine is ready for consumption. Secondly, when they pour the wine in your glass, they're not asking you whether or not you like it. They're asking you to confirm that the wine is sound, meaning the wine has survived its trip from bottle to table with a natural cork, maybe it all has a screw cap to make sure that the wine is indeed healthy. So what you do is you pick up your glass, you swirl the glass to introduce some air into the wine, you put your nose into the glass and you inhale. And you are simply, you will know, even if you don't know anything about wine, you will know when you smell a bad wine because it's unpleasant and it will wrinkle your nose and furrow your brow. And if the wine doesn't do that, you can put the glass back on the table and say, yes, please. Thank you. The wine is sound. Any of those phrases indicate to the server, yes, please go ahead and pour. So I never taste the wine unless. It is to confirm what my nose thinks is happening is that there's something wrong with the glass. This is part of the contract of you ordering the bottle. They tell you what the wine is. They pour the wine. You say the wine is sound, and it gets poured. The next tip I'll give to you in ordering off the list is if there is a wine that is unpronounceable, a grape you've never heard of from a place you didn't even know grew wine, (laughs) you should order that wine. It is impossible for a wine to be unpronounceable from a place you've never heard of, from a a place that didn't, uh, you know, grew wine, uh, to be there and to not be delicious. In fact, it has to be delicious. A sommelier puts that Hayoritico, Blau Francis, Cota de Volpe, Emir, Durif, Ferment on the list because they want you to try it. And they typically put it at a less margin because they know they have to make it more attractive 
in order to get people to order it. Mm. So one of the hidden gems on a list is the unpronounceable grapes. I love it. Or one from a place you've never heard of. Uh, Absolutely. Jason, I'm going to have to end it there. I very much enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to do this again in the future. You're a wealth of information and uh, incredibly entertaining. And uh, I'll look forward to the next book in your Modern Gentleman series and uh, even more so our next conversation on the radio. Grazie, Frank. Thanks for having me. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. But I do. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll get to your calls in just a minute. 800-848-WABC. Hey, it was great on Friday. I didn't get to talk about this yesterday because we were jam-packed with our extra hour of Anthony Weiner. We, um, it was great to be at the Joe Nolan kickoff to summer event on Friday at the Crab's Claw in uh, Lavalette, New Jersey. I had a great time. And uh, I'll tell you, I, uh, you know, I got there in the afternoon, stayed there a couple hours. My buddy Kyle O'Brien lives there in Lavalette, at least part of the year. And uh, he came down and met us. A lot of great listeners were down there as well. Uh, Donna from Huntington uh, came down there. And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. A lot of great people. And it was all to benefit the foundation that Joe Nolan has that's named for his mother. It's the Maureen Nolan Foundation. And last year... Uh, it was our listeners, the people that listened. I was hosting the 5 a.m. hour at the time with Juliet Huddy. It was the people that listened to that hour that made the year profitable for the Maureen Nolan Foundation. I'd love for our listeners to come through the same way this time around. So if you weren't able to be there, you can go to mnolanfoundation.org and make a contribution uh, and it helps some person pay for a Catholic school education. I did have a, a fish taco. I got to tell you, that fish taco would have been a lot easier to hold together with some edible tape. The fish taco fell apart, and it was still delicious, but it was quite messy. Let's get this edible tape in restaurants pronto. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. If you listen to the show, you know I am a fan of the Star Trek franchise. I have not seen the most recent couple of series. I've not seen Star Trek Discovery. I've not seen Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And I've not seen the animated show that a lot of people seem to really enjoy, Lower Decks. But I've seen... Uh, Star Trek, the original series, Star Trek, the next generation, Deep Space Nine, Enterprise, the animated series and uh, Picard. Right. I've seen those six series and all the movies, certainly. Now, as part of being a fan of Star Trek, the next generation, which honestly is one of the greatest television programs of all time. I have always been a fan of LeVar Burton, LeVar Burton, who I've had the good privilege of uh, interviewing couple of times. He was always great whenever I've spoken to him. He was Jordy LaForge on Star Trek The Next Generation, but he also has a career as an actor and as a personality and as somebody that's done a lot of interesting things beyond Star Trek The Next Generation, probably best known for Roots as an actor other than on Star Trek The Next Generation. Also, very well known as a director. Um, that's the opportunity that I had to interview him. I think he was uh, he was directing an episode of CSI New Orleans. He also was the host of a children's show geared towards enhancing literacy called Reading Rainbow, which was actually a great show. And I, I think there's even a Reading Rainbow app that they're they're trying to market now that he's involved with. And he's done a lot of interesting things. And he very openly on Twitter. One was campaigning to be the new host of Jeopardy. By the way, I am still campaigning, although my campaign seems to have stalled, to be the next host of the Late Late Show on on um, CBS, now that James Corden is retiring. Not a lot of people tweeting about that. If you tweet that, by the way, with the hashtag Late Late Frank Frank, hopefully tagging some of the right people, I will retweet you. I think that would be a job that I would be well-suited for. But LeVar Burton had been campaigning all over Twitter to be the new host of Jeopardy. He didn't get the gig. Initially, they picked this fellow, Mike Richards, who was also one of the producers of the show, and then he apparently made some inappropriate remarks on a podcast many years ago and did some politically incorrect things. And that gives him the uh, in the cancel culture era in which we live in a career death sentence, at least a career as a host of Jeopardy. So now there have been two rotating hosts, Ken Jennings, who, of course, is the winningest Jeopardy contestant we've ever had. And Mayim Bialik, who was, uh, she she played Blossom. That's what I really knew her from. But she's also very popular on a show, I believe it's The Big Bang Theory. And uh, she also happens to be a neuroscientist. She's a published author, a very bright woman, although she's been criticized for certain things, both as a host and doing other things. So, LeVar Burton, evidently, is still a little irked at being passed over as the host of Jeopardy. So he did a interview on a show called In the Loop, which is on a platform called Newsy. I have to tell you, I don't really know what In the Loop is. I don't know what Newsy is. The thing is now, there are so many different platforms. There's 9,000 channels. Then there's satellite channels. Then there's radio stations that have websites. Then there's websites that have radio stations. There's, uh, there's, there's 
too many things to keep track of. So I don't know if Newsy is a, a website or a, or a television channel, whatever. It's something. But they have this show on there called In the Loop. And LeVar Burton spoke to In the Loop about being a little disappointed, shall we say, about being passed over as the host of Jeopardy. Experiencing a very public defeat, humiliation, if you will, was sobering. And what I learned from the experience, really, is that it reinforced my belief that everything happens for a reason. Even if you cannot discern the reason in the moment, in the fullness of time, everything will be revealed. And like I said, it was, I think, in that first week of of feeling really sort of um, not just disappointed, but wrecked. (laughs) I didn't I, I didn't expect that I would not be their choice for host. And the doors have been opened, windows have been opened, the phone hasn't stopped ringing. And, and I never would have experienced those things that I'm experiencing, like hosting the script Spelling Bee, had I gotten that job. So um, I think it's a, it was a big lesson for me in just being willing to sit in the discomfort long enough to find out what was really supposed to happen for me around this game show thing. So I thought those were interesting remarks. And I think what he says is true. Sometimes what you view as just devastating and disappointment, it could lead to other things. And now he's going to be hosting uh, not only the script Spelling Bee, which is pretty cool, but he's also the creator and the host of a new game show based on my favorite board game. Well, maybe my second favorite board game because I do like Risk a lot. My second favorite board game, Trivial Pursuit. And I've always said for years that I would love to host a Trivial Pursuit game show. And I've always thought one would be successful. And I'm hopeful that this one with LeVar Burton will be successful. But here's the thing. So on the one hand, he seems to have a very positive attitude. But on the other, he's essentially complaining in this interview on Newsy that the whole process was fixed. And, you know, it sounds like some people that lose an election and complain that the election was was rigged. He's saying that he never had an opportunity to compete because it was fixed. Now, at least in the clips that I've seen, they didn't get uh, they didn't get into precisely how the fix was in, as he says it. But apparently, according to LeVar Burton, this is what he said. And I honestly thought that I was well suited for. for uh, so he said, the truth is, this was my favorite game show. It really was. I mean, I watched the show since I was in the third grade and Art Fleming was the host. And I honestly thought that I was well suited for it. As it turns out, it really wasn't a competition after all. The fix was in. So um, Curtis sent me this article and he just sent the words sore loser. Now, it does seem like the fix was in because... (laughs) Mike Richards, who was the person that was selected to host the game show, 
was one of the producers at the time. You know, it's like and he was having a say in selecting the other fill-in hosts that he was competing with, knowing full well that he was competing with them. He was giving them feedback. He was doing all sorts of things where he was involved in the selection process as if he was an unbiased arbiter, when in fact he was very biased because he wanted the job for himself. So I I disagree with Curtis's characterization. I mean, I think Curtis... I don't think he thought about it for more than 30 seconds. He probably just was teeing, you know, teasing me because he knows I'm a fan of Jeopardy and a fan of LeVar Burton. But the fix wasn't. I mean, it's like if Chad Lopez, the president of our radio station, better yet, John Katsimatidis, John Katsimatidis, well, maybe Chad's a better example, right? Chad Lopez, the president of our radio station, wants to be considered as the new host of the morning show. Let's say Bernie and Sid's contract is up. They go to another radio station. They don't want to come up. They don't want to come back. And Chad Lopez wants to be considered as the host of the morning show on WABC. Well, I mean, if Chad is involved in the selection process, who do you think has a better chance of getting it? Chad or somebody else? Or Frank Morano? Of course it's Chad. So I found that... I found... You know, he seemed to have, he didn't seem bitter at all. He seemed to have a very, I don't know, long view of the whole situation. And uh, to me, that's why LeVar Burton is such an effective communicator, because he's passionate about what he does, because he loves education, because he loves Jeopardy. And um, this is part of the reason why I think I'd be a good show for that, a a good host for that late, late show. And again, if you want to Tweet about that. Use the hashtag late, late, Frank, Frank. Now, um, the other thing that's interesting on Jeopardy, and my wife and I were watching yesterday, have you seen what's happening? The fella that's on there now has won 12 straight games. And, by the way, you have my permission to be impressed. I got Final Jeopardy yesterday, and it was not a category that's one of my strong suits. So I, I'm always very proud whenever I get Final wow. Jeopardy wrong and multiple contestants, excuse me, whenever I get it correct, and multiple contestants get it wrong. But uh, this fellow that's on there now, Ryan Long, has won 12 straight games. And it's very interesting. This comes right after uh, Matea, I believe it's Matea Roach. She was on a super long Jeopardy winning streak. And not long after, Amy Burser was on a super long Jeopardy winning streak. Now, so far, I haven't seen NBC News put out anything describing Ryan Long, who's an incredibly smart guy. He's a he's an Uber driver, and he's won a quarter of a million dollars so far on Jeopardy, it's describing him by his sexuality as they did with Matea Roach or his gender identity, because remember, Amy Burser was a, a transgender woman, and they couldn't help but uh, put that all over social media as well. So I don't know what it says. And I said to my wife, well, when I grew up watching Jeopardy, they had term limits for champions, that you could not win Jeopardy more than five games in a row. Now, they did away with that. And obviously, Ken Jennings was one of the first bigger recipients of that, one of the first big beneficiaries of that. But I don't know what it says about the era of Jeopardy that we're in now, that you have all these super champions. Ryan Long, 
Matea Roach, Amy, uh, I believe it's Amy Burser. No, that's uh, Corey Windelspeck's role. Amy, uh, you know, Amy, the the lady that won 40-something games. Um, I, Amy Schneider, excuse me. I don't know. It's going to be a very interesting tournament of champions this year with all these super champions, and I'm excited to watch it. I mean, just think about it. In the last couple of years, you've had Matt Amodio, You've had James Holtzauer. You've had Amy Schneider, Matea Roach. Now this fella, uh, Ryan Long. It's very exciting time to be a Jeopardy fan. It's like we're living in an era where these Jeopardy contestants are giants, not mortal men and women and non-binary people. So um, I thought that was interesting. I, I, I still am a little disappointed that LeVar Burton didn't get selected as the host of Jeopardy, but I'm wishing him the best of luck with this new game show that he's doing about Trivial Pursuit. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze. I think LeVar Burton is a sore loser. You do? Yeah. How many acting roles do you think he went after, auditioned for, didn't get that he thought he was well-suited for? Well, but here's the difference, right? Is... um. Here, there was the illusion of a fair competition, and yet Mike Richards, who was part of the the group that was deciding it, was competing with him for the job. But Mike Richards isn't the host anymore. So they didn't call LeVar Burton and say, hey, come on and host now. And maybe when LeVar Burton auditioned, they didn't think he was right for it, and Mike Richards just went, you know what, I'll do it. Or they picked him to do it well, because that's not nobody happened. else was was yeah. good enough. That well, that is not what happened. Mike Richards, what, there's a whole article about this. It's called The Ringer, and they published an expose essentially painting Richards. And you know, I'd love to have Richards on this show. He's welcome to address this. But they painted Richards as an oppor- opportunist that essentially, you know, cheated. He cheated his way into getting to be the host of Jeopardy. But your other point is well suited, right? I mean it where it has it holds some they water didn't with call me. him back and they, say Yeah, right. They, come on the they show. called back Ken Jennings and Mayim Bialik. They didn't call back he or Katie Couric or Aaron Rodgers or any of these other people that um they could have. So maybe you're right about that. I don't think he's a sore loser. I think in that piece of audio that we just played, he see it sounds very contemplative. And it's an important lesson, you know, especially for children. When, you know, you get a setback, you don't make a, a team or something, or you don't get a role in a play, it's so tempting, or so, your girlfriend breaks up with you, whatever the case may be, it's so tempting to just be despondent and move on and, and not be able to roll with the punches when you move on. But LeVar Burton shows that, you know, one door opens, another door closes. I'm curious if you guys agree with Matt Blaze, or do you agree with me? 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Xavier is in Manhattan. Hello, Xavier. Hey, Frank. I love your show. We're sitting in my bar. I have a bar in Manhattan. What bar? bar I agree with I, Billy Marks West on 29th and 9th. We listen to you every night before we go home. I agree with you guy. He's a, he was a, he was an imposter. LeVar Burton was, is, was milk toast. Blossom is like somebody's old grandmother. <laughs> With the way she dresses, she looks like somebody's old grandmother. But Ken Jennings is 
absolutely the rightful host. We watch Jeopardy every single night in our bar. We listen to you every single night. Oh, wow. Why not? You guys are great. I'm an ABC guy since Cousin Brucey since back in the 60s. Love it. Hey, I, I know your bar. I, I've passed. I, I've been to your bar, and I've passed it a bunch. It's been a while since I've been there. Your bar is very much kind of like an old school New York bar. That's New my York kind in. of place. Well, we'll, we'll come in. We'll serve you, and we'll sit there. We'll roast you. We'll love you. But Ken Jennings is the rightful host. Mike Richard is the all-time smiling face, happy host of game shows. But Blossom is somebody's old grandmother. The Bob Burton was milk toast. Aaron Rodgers, the only thing worse about him is the way he can't get the Green Bay Packers back to the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, hey, um, what what hours are you open over there at Billy Marks West? We're open from we we open Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, eight a.m. to four a.m. And on Sunday we open eleven a.m. to four a.m. So you're still open for two more hours. No, we're open for another hour and 30 minutes. Actually, it's me and my guy. We're just cleaning up. And we're listening. Again, I listen to you every night, and I listen to you when I drive home. Because, again, I'm an ABC guy. I love you guys. I think you're right. But I think your PC is showing with LeVar Burton. Why? Why? Why do you say that? Did because you watch he's black? Him when he was the host? Yeah. I, you know. He was terrible. But so what's my PC? What? Why would, if anything, I think my Star Trek fandom is showing. Something. Can I be honest with you? Go ahead. He ain't done nothing. He ain't did nothing since Roots. Well, Star Trek: The Next Generation. Oh come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ex- be frank. Really? Ex- ex- I thought he was great as Jordy LaForge. Well, because you're a Star Trek guy. I thought if he didn't do Roots, you never would have heard of him. Well, I mean, look, everybody gets a big break, right? Xavier, I'm going to come in and see you on maybe a Friday uh, around 8 a.m. I'll be the first call, okay? It would be fantastic. Right. What do you like? What do you drink? Uh, well, at your place, I would drink bourbon neat. Oh, we got, I got the best stuff in the world. I, we got, I'll break out the Blanton's for you. Oh, all right. Now, I may get there sooner rather than later then, Xavier. All right. And I do love you guys, and it's nothing personal. It's just business, brother. <laughs> I love that guy. We've got to, you know, that is, I didn't know if he was going to be offended by the term, and maybe this is my PC show, but that place, and I have been in there, it's a great place, but it's an old school New York dive bar. I don't know how they afford to keep paying the rent in that place because that whole area has been overtaken with these big monster bars that almost are like chain restaurants. And uh, that place is. Old school. I like that place a lot. But just to go back to the Mike Richards situation, you know, there was one tweet that um, that I think really explained in general the problem with the Mike Richards situation. This, and I don't know who tweeted this, but they're right on the money. Will Jeopardy executive producer Mike Richards have to rethink making executive producer Mike Richards the new host of Jeopardy now that these allegations have come up? Only executive producer Mike Richards can answer that. (laughs) And, that you know, I think it's a clear conflict of interest that Mike Richards was selected. I think the fix was in. 
in my view. Uh, take your calls on this in just a second or on what you think it means on this. And I really want to schedule a day for this uh, to going to uh, Billy Marks West. See, the only I think it might be easier for me to stay late, meaning after the show. And I think the only day I could do it is on a Friday. Next, This Friday, I'm in Hawaii. The following Friday, I'm going to be in, at the Talkers Convention on Long Island. Maybe we could do it the following Friday, right? I think that's probably the... Uh, the best, uh, best option. All right. Now, 800-848-WABC. Gordon is in Canada. Hello, Gordon. Uh, good morning, Frank. Good morning. It's election eve here day. Election eve day here. Now, now, so what do you guys have, local elections or parliamentary elections today? This is a provincial election. Oh, yeah, okay. It's local elections for us. Oh, today? No, or no, no. That's what we would call it. Gordon, what's on your mind, pal? Well, uh, yeah, apparently you're discussing uh, Levar Burton being a sore loser. For yes, not, uh, Le- Levar Burton, yes. Well, I, I'm not sure what he said, but I, I don't think he was... Uh, well, I played you the audio, Gordon, of what he said. Oh, please do. No, no, I already played it. Gordon, I have a feeling this is going to be one of those calls, Gordon. Where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut my losses there before we, we, we spend a little too much time on this one. Now... Um, I did want to mention this. Hey, speaking, uh, I don't think LeVar Burton's overrated, by the way. I don't. I really don't. Um, there was an interesting article, actually a series of articles, and I'm sorry we didn't have Dr. Sky on to address this, but killer asteroids are hiding in plain sight, and now there's a new tool helping spot them. Have you noticed over the last 10 months the uptick in articles about killer asteroids. I'm wondering if that's because eventually whoever the powers that be are are starting to realize that we're all going to have to deal with one of these killer asteroids, like in the movie Asteroid, like in the movie Deep Impact, like in the movie Armageddon, or the most recent film Don't Look Up, which I liked, even though a lot of other people didn't. And researchers have built an algorithm that can scan old astronomical images for unnoticed space rocks, helping to detect objects that could one day imperil Earth. And so this fella, Dr. Ed Liu, who's a a NASA, a former NASA astronaut, he's got a doctorate in applied physics, and he's built this nonprofit group. It's called the B612 Foundation, that um, has announced the discovery of more than 100 asteroids. And now these new asteroids are reported all the time by sky watchers around the sky, around the world, including amateurs with backyard telescopes. Now, what's remarkable here is that his group, B612, did not build a new telescope or even make new observations with existing telescopes. Instead, these researchers, financed by this Dr. Liu's group, applied cutting-edge computational expertise to years-old images, 412,000 of them that are in the digital archives, to sift asteroids out of the 68 billion dots of cosmic light captured in these images. And as Dr. Liu told the New York Times, this is the modern way of doing astronomy. So the research adds to the planetary defense efforts that have been undertaken by NASA and other organizations. So today, 
Of the estimated 25,000 near-Earth asteroids, at least 460 feet in diameter, only about 40% of them have been found. Now, that's frightening. Did you have any idea about that? I didn't. Think of what I just said. There are 25,000 asteroids near Earth that are at least 460 feet in diameter. We have only found about 40% of them. That means the other 60%, about 15,000 space rocks, each with the potential of unleashing the energy equivalent of hundreds of millions of tons of dynamite in a collision with the Earth, remain undetected. So these researchers have developed a way to discover what has already been seen but not noticed. And so typically asteroids are discovered when the same part of the sky is photographed multiple times during the course of one night. But um, I don't necessarily fully get this, but I'm glad that this group is doing it. They're monitoring these old images and seeing where these asteroids happen to be. I'm going to invite Dr. Lou on the radio and see if we can't do uh, something on this. But the scientists have sifted through about one-eighth of the data of a single month from the archives. And many of them were already in the catalog of asteroids maintained by the people that maintain this stuff, the astronomers that maintain this stuff. Some of them had been previously observed, but only during one night and the tracklet was not enough to confidently determine an orbit. So this this group, this minor planet center, has confirmed 104 objects as new discoveries. So because of the work they're doing, they've already detected 104 new asteroids. But that still means there's tens of thousands of new asteroids waiting to be found. So this algorithm is currently configured to only find main belt asteroids those with orbits between Mars and Jupiter and not near-Earth asteroids. But I think this is pretty exciting, and I'm looking forward to learning more about this. 800-848-WABC if you want to comment on Jeopardy, LeVar Burton, or asteroids. Now's the time. Uh, This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. side of midnight i'm frank moreno you want to weigh in uh, on anything we're discussing 800-848-wabc uh, that is 1-800-848-9222 let me say hello to john in brooklyn hello john live long and prosper uh, peace and uh, long life i uh, let me let me say that i'm glad I'm, I'm also a huge jeopardy fan too and i'm impressed with all these super contestants they've had as of late, including the current one. But let me, speaking of Star Trek, let me say that I'm glad that uh, Burton isn't hosting Jeopardy because if he 
was, he might not have been able to participate in the third season of Star Trek Picard. Well, I, I don't I, know if you I, know. Yeah, no, I know. They're doing a whole Next Generation uh, reunion. I think that's a good point. I uh, And I think, you know, that's not dissimilar from what he was saying. Like, uh, he's essentially saying one door closes, another one opens. Now he will get to do Picard. He'll get to do this Trivial Pursuit show. He'll get to host the Spelling Bee. But um, do you... Well, they already filmed that third season, so... I see. That, that's in the can right now. Hey, so. w- what did you think of season two of Picard? I haven't seen all of it. I've only caught a couple of episodes. I don't know. It's It's a little... Mystifying. Yeah, I'm glad they brought back John Delancey, though. Yeah, Yeah, it it is great to see the interactions with he and Patrick Stewart. That's for sure. Thank you, John. Speaking of television, last night, my wife and I concluded the I don't want to say we concluded the season, but we concluded the first part of the season of Better Call Saul. Are you familiar with Better Call Saul? It's a great show with Bob Odenkirk and one of the greatest primetime dramas since The Sopranos was um, Breaking Bad with Brian Cranston. And if you haven't seen Breaking Bad, then I saw it later. So most of the people that are into dramatic television probably saw it when it was on. I didn't see it until right after it was on. But uh, Better Call Saul is mostly a prequel and a little bit of a sequel to Breaking Bad. And so now... They are in the midst of the sixth and final season of this program. And what they're doing is something that a lot of other shows have been doing, I've noticed, is they don't just release the season. Maybe this was done in part due to COVID. I don't know. But they don't just release all the episodes of the season one week at a time. They released the first seven episodes, I believe. I think seven or eight. And then they call that the mid-season finale. And then they're going to come back in July and finish the season and the series. And then presumably that'll tie up all the loose ends and lead us right up to the beginning of uh, Breaking Bad. Now, I have to tell you, this mid-season finale, and don't worry, I'm not going to give any spoilers away. This mid-season finale of Better Call Saul was absolutely phenomenal. This episode, and really I think this whole season, with the exception of the problem that I mentioned when I first started watching it, which is that too much time has passed and they didn't do a good job catching you up on everything that you need to know. But the season as a whole was really well done. This most recent episode, this mid-season finale, phenomenal. Because it really did what this show does best. Which is, and and my wife actually prefers Better Call Saul to Breaking Bad because there's so many moments of levity. And this episode was no exception. The episode begins with basically a lighthearted implementation of a caper. And it's hilarious. The way they put together this con, and I'm not going to say who they is or what the con is, for those of you that haven't seen it, it's hysterical. And then, sure enough, throughout the next 50 minutes, the drama quotient slowly gets turned up and up and up until the last few minutes of this episode. My wife and I are both on the edge of our seats. And it goes from the beginning of the episode being lighthearted and fun and funny 
to absolute sheer terror. And that's not an exaggeration. And I'm not going to give anything away. But if you're a fan of this series, you will enjoy the most recent season if you haven't seen it in its entirety. And the most recent episode, which just aired seven or eight days ago. If you have seen Breaking Bad but not Better Call Saul, I envy you. Because what I wouldn't be able to do, what I wouldn't give to be able to watch this series through your eyes, it's really a phenomenal series. I can't say enough good things about it. Uh, but I'm now, I feel like I'm getting something done when I finish one of these series. I feel like I, I have an item checked off my list and I can move on to something else that I have to accomplish. Now, I realize watching television isn't really an accomplishment, but for some reason in my book it is. 800. 848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, two things, Frank, about breaking, before I get to Breaking Bad, uh, would be uh, the asteroid thing. Uh, you know, we could track it better. We're not going to be able to do anything about a hit from an asteroid. Uh, would you consider it divine retribution if it does happen, though? Well, I mean, no, uh, but uh, it's not for me to question, I guess, God's motives. <laughs> right, right. Uh, now, uh, does it help you with these, uh, like, do you miss stuff uh, in these things? If, say, you do see an episode two, three, four times, do you find you're missing stuff that you pick up the second, third, or fourth time with, say, an episode of Breaking Bad? Well, I'll be honest. I have never really gone back and rewatched many of these episodes. Um, and I think, you know, it was on television recently and I put it on for a few minutes and I really, my wife and I both said the same thing. Oh boy, you know, we really should rewatch this because you do forget a lot. And I'm sure I do miss stuff, but it's just finding the time to watch things once. That's a challenge, let alone watching them twice. I don't see, I don't see that happening. Yeah, it might be interesting to if you try that. Uh, if there were clues that were there that set up stuff that happened, yeah, that might. Be yeah, well, I know they do put those Easter eggs in there. That's for sure. Um, yeah, to get that perspective, uh, where uh, like Game of Thrones will be similar to that too. See, I, I've never seen that, but I'm told it's a great show. I've never met somebody that didn't like it. Tell you one thing, Frank, about Game of Thrones, which I was surprised. It really is not just like the supernatural. It's like the the strange normal stuff is mixed in. So so that's the art of that, where the strange stuff is just regular strange stuff mixed with supernatural, and it keeps you guessing that way, whether rather than straightforward supernatural. So so that's the art of that, I think. Yeah, well, you might be right. Look, uh, like I said, everyone I know that's seen that series, they absolutely love it. It's on my list. I'm going to watch it one day. I keep this long list of programs that I'm going to watch one day when I'm independently wealthy or unemployed. I don't think either of those things are likely to happen anytime soon, but at least we have a large selection of shows to choose from. Rich is on Staten Island. Hello, Rich. Hi, uh, Frank. Uh, just about LeVar Burton, uh She's been in the business long enough. He should really know that you get you win some, you don't you don't get some roles. In fact, many years back, he played a uh, a baseball player. His name was Ron Lafleur. He was discovered in jail, actually in Michigan, uh, by Billy Martin, and he ended up making the major leagues. 
And Ron LaFleur was uh, very disappointed that LeVar Burton was actually to play him because he has actually no athletic skills. As a matter of fact, uh, he threw a ball like he was taking a hot biscuit out of the oven. And uh, so he got that role. He didn't get jeopardy. And he has to move on from there. Well, agreed. Agreed, Rich. Uh, The only thing – thank you for the call. The only thing I was saying was that I didn't think he was being a sore loser – I think a credible case can be made that the fix wasn't. That was all I was saying. But you, Xavier, John from Brooklyn, Matt Blaze, all of you raise good points. So I have nothing, you know, what, what do you want from me? My opinion. Once in a while you tune into the show, you're going to get my opinion. So um, if you could find me on Instantgram. Uh, technically, I know it's Instagram, but I enjoy calling it Instantgram. At Morano Vision, that's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. And I put up a photo yesterday of my son uh, that I took on uh, over the weekend, on Monday. And I put it up yesterday. And I thought it was a really good photo. And he's not smiling in it, but he looks like he's thinking. And he looks very pensive. He looks like he's got a lot going on in there. And I thought it was a not really nice photo. But then my wife saw it before I left. And she said that um, she thought that it was an ugly photo. She said, how can you put this up? He's not even smiling. But a lot of the people that were commenting on the photo on Instagram, they thought it was a good photo, too. So I felt somewhat vindicated. But uh, maybe she's right. Maybe I should only put up the photos where he's smiling ear to ear. But I think uh, sometimes an alternative photo is nice as well. My my view. All right. 800-848-WABC. Again, if you want to be added to our email list, you can email me frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And we're still trying to stack up on kidneys, people looking to be a living kidney donor. And we're trying to distribute the kidneys as we see fit and uh, or as really on a need basis. So if you want to give a kidney away, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. My thanks to that gentleman who is giving one away. I'm going to be in touch with you. And, oh, here's what's interesting. You know, Philippe, who we have lent to the morning show this week, and my thanks to Ryan for sitting in the telephone talent coordinator chair thus far. He may not be doing as well as Philippe, but he's certainly doing much better than, than Avery. But here's what's interesting. Philippe and I did a deep dive into the podcast data on Friday before our meeting, and we came up with a number of interesting things. One of the things that we found was that the podcast – we're doing very well in terms of the podcast downloads, and thank you to everyone that listens to the show via podcast. But one of the things that we found was that there's a substantially – higher number of people that listen to the podcast of this program on Fridays as compared to the rest of the week. Now, that was interesting for a few reasons. One, the live streaming ratings, the live streaming numbers are also higher on Fridays as opposed to the rest of the week. And the radio ratings are higher on Friday as opposed to the rest of the week. Now, they're great the whole week. Don't get me wrong. But Fridays always seem to have a little bit of an extra oomph. So we started debating internally. I mean, what is it about Fridays? Are more people listening to the podcast because of the Friday features that we do, namely Ask Frank Anything and um, 
denunciations. And I have a few other st- things that I do on Fridays, which you may not even necessarily notice. Because I, I kind of slip in there. Or are the podcast downloads up on Friday simply because people have the whole weekend to catch up on their podcast and they're listening to the most recent show? Additionally, if they're you know regular listeners of weekday radio programming, maybe their favorite radio shows are not on on the weekend and they can go back and listen to the podcast of the most recent edition of this show. So what we're going to do this week is a little bit of an experiment. And I'm excited to see how this works out. Because I imagine, uh, so I'm not going to be here Friday because I'm in Hawaii for my uh, brother's wedding. Looking forward to that. I imagine that uh, Curtis is going to be here on Friday. Do you have any idea if that's the case? So I think Curtis is here on Friday. But there'll be some sort of a live show on Friday. And what I want to try and do for this week is the following. I'd like to do our Friday features on Thursday, meaning we would do Ask Frank Anything tomorrow and Denunciations tomorrow on Thursday and then have Curtis or whomever's filling in on Friday fill in on Friday. And then come next week, we can see if... Thursday is our most listened to or most downloaded show of the week. You know, it could be as simple as Friday, people don't have to work the next day. They're staying up later. That would explain the live streaming numbers, not necessarily the podcast numbers. So we're going to do that. That's this week's experiment. We're going to see if the Thursday downloads are greater when we put the Friday features in there or if Friday is still higher with a substitute host. And then that will answer that. But we did look at the data, and we are killing it in terms of podcasts. Bernie and Sid, they have more people. I think they have more people listening to their podcast than there actually are people in New York State. I mean, they are doing superhuman podcast numbers. And um, the early news with Deb Valentine is doing great. James Golden is doing great. Larry Kudlow is doing great. And O'Reilly's doing great. And then we're doing very well. So we are right on the heels of Bill O'Reilly, which is a little bit, little bit shy of O'Reilly. So what I'd love for you to do is help me catch Bill O'Reilly in these podcast numbers. So there's two things that you can do. Well, three things. One, even if you listen to this show live, please subscribe to the podcast right now. All you have to do is whatever your p- favorite podcast app is iTunes, Spotify, CastBox, whatever your favorite app is, wherever you get your podcast, just search The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. That's it. Just search and hit the subscribe button. Then um, we'd like it if you could leave, especially on Apple iTunes, a positive review, a five-star review and a positive comment about that. And then finally, Tell a friend to do the same. And if you do those three things, we're going to catch every, not only Bill O'Reilly, but everybody in the podcasting game. All right. Um, and again, I don't know that Curtis is filling in Friday, but uh, that's what I would imagine the likely plan is. I will I will check with our program director, Matt Meany, and report back to you tomorrow. All right. If you want to comment on anything we are discussing, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Curtis has been in in at noon this week. Sounds great, I must say. He's been sounding great all week at noon. 
of the little bit of it that I have gotten to hear. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. what kind of music we're playing on this show, uh, just join our Facebook group. On Facebook, search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's uh, M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. By the way, a few people emailed me earlier uh, that thought they were on my email list and said they didn't receive an email from me yesterday. If that's the case, I would just say uh, check your spam folder because sometimes the email gets caught in people's spam folders. So uh, very interesting. All right. So, by the way, on Instagram, a lot of people are agreeing with me that that photo that I posted of my son yesterday is a nice photo. Now, um, one of the people that disagrees is my wife, Rachel. I'll tell you, I have never met a person who has had more bad luck with hoses than my wife, Rachel. Now, Lately, she hasn't been able to make it this far in the podcast because she's busy working and running a household and tending to our child. So I feel pretty free to talk about her in this particular hour, unless she's up with a late night feeding. But I got to tell you, I have no idea what's going on in our backyard. I have no idea what's going on in our front yard. As long as the rocking chair on our porch that I like to smoke cigars in is in place and our two our two flags, one New York State flag and one American flag, are both firmly in place. I have no idea what's going on. So evidently there's all sorts of things. Rachel has done all sorts of planting. She's got flowers and other plants, potted plants, non-potted plants. And she does a lot of cleaning. She loves planting, loves cleaning. Both of those things require water. So she had she got one of these hoses that you see in all these infomercials, one of these hoses that was supposedly indestructible. And just as we were getting, you know, the yards in shape for summer and spring, she goes into the backyard and finds and finds that this indestructible hose has a hole in it. So she's ticked off. It's supposed to last a lifetime, and of course it didn't. 
So she gets rid of that hose and then goes and buys a super strong, biggest bad hose, garden hose that you could find. She gets that, puts that back there. Okay. Then, same thing happens with the hose that's in our front yard. Another one of these indestructible hoses that has a hole in it. So we replace that hose. And every what we did last year was we borrowed a pressure washer from our friends, the, the Lantries, because they have one. And, you know, figured we could borrow it. And they were very good about letting us borrow it. This year, my wife said she did not want to borrow, go to the difficulty, go to the trouble of borrowing the Lantry's pressure washer. So she bought our own pressure washer, which arrived this past weekend, and I put it together. I must say, I think I did a pretty good job putting it together. I I fixed the air. We have this hose apparatus in our front yard that was leaking for some reason because I guess it wasn't assembled properly. I fixed that. It's no longer leaking. It's working. And so we now have a working hose in the front, a working hose in the back, and presumably a working pressure washer. So my wife goes, oh, I left one part part of this out of the equation. So she tries to attach this hose in the backyard to the spray nozzle. Doesn't work, won't attach. And I then, very quickly, go online and purchase a spray nozzle that's specifically geared for this type of hose. And I was a hero for about 15 minutes. And then quickly I went back to just being the loser that doesn't help sufficiently enough around the house that I am the rest of the time. So um, my wife goes to hook up the pressure washer to the back. And wouldn't you know it? The new hose that she got, which is, unlike the Pope, not holy at all, the new hose which she got won't connect to the pressure washer. So now she's got this brand new pressure washer. And and now that is a pretty close approximation to the level of screaming that I heard. Poor Carmine is, you know, I went out there to help with an errand that I thought was going to be 40 seconds and we left Carmine in, in, you know, on his play mat. And ultimately, this quickly turned into an hour ordeal of <laughs> trying to deal with these hoses. So the pressure washer doesn't fit the hose in the back. It doesn't fit the hose in the front. And now we're contemplating what to do. Do we return it? Do we do this? Do we do that? And we find, ultimately, that those hoses, the nozzle for them, isn't a standard hose nozzle. The gauge or the the size of it isn't standard. So the latest endeavor in this, and, and again, this is all stuff that should not take very long. And my wife even admitted, she said, I've never seen someone that has p- worse luck with hoses than we do. So we have procured, I, I didn't know such a thing existed, but we have procured a hose adapter which is going to make it so that it fits the existing hoses which we we have, which, again, unlike the patriarch of the Orthodox Church, is not holy at all, and it will connect and make it, it will fit into the pressure washer. That's the plan. So I'm assuming it was ordered online. I'm assuming that this new hose-to-pressure-washer adapter 
will arrive in the next day or so. Now, I'm leaving for Hawaii tomorrow after the show. Now, given our luck with hoses, I have to tell you, there is a big part of me that hopes that this hose adapter arrives after I've left for Hawaii so that if things go wrong, that uh, my wife has some time to cool down on this one. So Jesus, we'll see. Frank! We will see where it goes. All right. 800-848-WABC. Coming up at 4.30, we're going to talk with Tanya Ryman. Tanya has been a guest on this show before. She is a body language expert and an author. And she's going to break down for us, one, how you can use some of her expertise to help you in your own life, project an air of authority and so forth. But also, she's going to break down for us the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial and what we can learn about who's telling the truth in terms of body language. So that'll be exciting. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Do you remember the good old days when all we had to worry about was a toilet paper shortage and then a baby formula shortage? Well, we, we actually have entered into a new era in which there's a lot more than products that there's a shortage of, but there's a shortage of people doing certain jobs. And, uh, in fact, I don't know if we'll get to this today. I'll try But there's also a shortage of vitamin D. Apparently, everybody just about is vitamin D deficient. We'll get into that hopefully later. But there is a shortage of carpenters and lifeguards. Let's discuss the carpenter issue first. Um, The Great Recession has led, led to a carpenter exodus. But... A lot of cultural issues and a lot of pay issues have stunted the profession's growth for far longer. So right now, um, carpentry is having a very tough time. You don't have to look hard to find Americans trying and failing to hire carpenters during almost any era. Shortages popped up on a regional basis as far back as the 40s, and they really became entrenched nationally in the 1990s. Since then, one of the only reprieves from the shortages of the shortage of carpenters was when the financial crisis hit in 2008. There was no longer a scarcity of carpenters because hardly anybody was building. Nobody was building new houses. Nobody was buying new houses. They couldn't sell the houses they had that people were getting thrown out of. 
So as soon as construction slightly bounced back in 2011, builders again began worrying about a sharpenter about a shortage of carpenters again. So many of the carpenters who lost their jobs in the financial crisis left the industry for good. And now that home construction is approaching pre-Great Recession levels, the shortages of carpenters have reached new heights. Four years ago, a survey by the National Association of Home Builders revealed, ready for this, 90% of single-family builders reported a shortage of carpenter subcontractors. Those numbers were even higher in the most recent poll from the National Association of Builders from last November. Uh, The builders were finding it harder to hire the three types of carpenters than any other building trade. The three types of carpenters. I just learned this. I don't feel bad if if you don't know this. Framing carpenters, rough carpenters, and finished carpenters. Those were the three tradesmen that builders were having the hardest time finding. They were having a hard time with other places, other people, bricklayers, plumbers, concrete workers, electrician. Nobody as tough as the three types of carpenters. Now, the carpenter shortage could be worse, believe it or not, were it not for pandemic-rooted supply issues. Because home builders would need even more carpenters if it didn't take them several months to procure enough lumber to start a new house. So, in some ways, the fact that these builders can't even get wood is helping mask at least a little bit of the carpenter shortage. But the shortage of carpenters is leading to all sorts of construction delays and, you guessed it, higher expenses for builders. And as Ed Brady, the president of the Home Builders Institute, told the website Bankrate, he used to pay carpenters two fifty per square foot to frame a house. You know what he's paying now? Three times that. Three times that. A cost that is passed on to whom? That's right. You, the consumer. Yet even with rising wages... Carpenters find they're not making enough money. Now, how can this be? How can we be seeing carpenters get paid three times what they were getting paid 15 years ago and not make enough money? Because if you compare the median wage of a carpenter to a fast food worker, a bus driver, or a real estate agent, carpentry wins. But if you compare carpenter pay to almost any other building trade, the other trade comes out on top. Isn't that interesting? Again, bricklayer, electrician, concrete worker, they're all making more than carpenters, even though the carpenter shortage is at its worst compared to the other trades. So a recent analysis by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics um, indicated that carpenters with a median with median annual earnings at $48,000 ranked last dead last in median pay out of 19 of the most common trades dead last so the lower wages of carpenters have been consistent for generations you know you, you know why Jesus 
couldn't afford any nice clothes because he was a carpenter. He was walking around in those natty-looking robes because even back then, 2020-something years ago, you couldn't, couldn't get a good wage as a carpenter. The difference between them and other popular trades, though, was not as drastic. Now, the disparity between what a carpenter is earning and what a sheet metal worker or a paper hanger or a brick mason is earning is very, very different. In the mid-20s, for instance, an average carpenter made 5% less than an average electrician. The difference now is 14%. So the pay gap has also grown between carpenters and everybody else, plumbers, you name it. So I think this is a big cause for concern. And so I did a little research on this subject as to why carpenters are making less money than their peers in other trades. One is the extensive nature of the job. Carpenter projects, both remodels and new builds, often take weeks or months, whereas plumbers and electricians can finish jobs in a matter of hours. And apparently there's also a lower barrier to entry. Carpenters don't have to go through an extensive licensing process in most states, as electricians and plumbers do. Um, And it's very interesting. So carpenters still have to pick up these skills that are just as difficult to master as those higher-paying trades while risking injury. So if you think about it, why would you be a carpenter? when you could risk the same injury and make more money being an electrician or a bricklayer. I think we've got to do something about this. And uh, I think we've got to get carpenters paid a little bit more because this shortage of carpenters is leading to a shortage of housing stocks, which is leading to housing prices going through the roof, even with them raising the prime interest rate, the Federal Reserve, And it's making inflation worse for everybody. So I realize it might seem counterintuitive to talk about raising wages for one particular type of worker to help inflation for everybody. But I honestly do think that's the case. There is a carpenter shortage that is going that is hurting everybody. So you you combine the poor pay for carpenters with the great exodus of carpenters during the Great Recession from the workforce, and you are seeing the makings of a carpenter crisis. So if you're a carpenter or a former carpenter or a builder, and you've seen this firsthand, I'd love to hear from you. 800-848-WABC. Now, I mentioned the cultural aspects of this as well. This newsletter that I do subscribe to called The Hustle. Uh, which is quite good. And if you subscribe to it, use my referral code so that I can win a a free mug or something. But uh, evidently, they say that there is a tremendous lack of women and blacks that want to become carpenters. So uh, there are very few black and female carpenters. And the ones that are there experience a great deal of hazing. And the hustle chronicles one particular instance of this woman, Nikea uh, Hunter, 
who was inspired by construction at a young age. She dreamed of turning raw materials into something communities can use forever, but her father warned her that she'd never make it. And then um, she was subjected to years through her apprenticeship of verbal and physical abuse, including two carpenters pulling back a two-by-four piece of lumber and letting it slap her in the face. So to get other workers to train her and eventually rise to the level of foreman, she said she had to conform to be an a-hole. She had to laugh at—she's a black woman. She had to laugh at the racist jokes and laugh at the sexist jokes just to get along with her co-workers and not be denied the training opportunities that others have been. So she wrote a book about it. It's called The Black Carpenter Guide, and she chronicles— other black and female carpenters that experience similar instances of discrimination. So apparently only about 6% of carpenters in this country are black. So that is also contributing on some level to this situation. So the question now that people are asking is, can carpentry be saved? So people who work in or study these trades find a reason for the carpenter shortage that stands above nearly everything else, beyond the cultural issue that I just mentioned of fewer blacks and women wanting to be carpenters, beyond the poor pay. People who work and study this stuff say one of the key reasons for this shortage is exposure. For generations, young people have been encouraged to place college above work in the trades and to see college as a binary choice separate from the trades, stigmatizing the work and decimating these programs that once introduced teenagers to carpentry and other skills. So as a result, hardly anyone picks up a saw at a young age. Most people never even watch someone engage in carpentry or have any idea what it takes to become a carpenter. Sarah Smith, co-founder of the Saw Horse Revolution, which is a Seattle-based nonprofit that provides community and education for young, uh, uh, young carpenters, she said there isn't much of an obvious pathway at all. And many former paths have closed in Seattle. 17 public high schools once had wood shop classes. That number has now shrunk to three. Um, so this is a big problem. High school enrollment in construction classes has plummeted in recent years. There's also the TikTok and Instagram fa- factor. Um, for the last 20 years, the U.S. has been awash in reality TV programming centered on houses. But those TV shows usually glorified designers and realtors rather than the people who actually build and renovate homes. So social media has added a new dimension. Of, instead of sticking to quick before and after characterizations like on TV, a lot of carpenter influencers reveal the nuances of their trade, showing the viewers the actual work it takes to create something. So people are hoping that this social media, Instagram, TikTok factor of carpentry is going to lead to more your young people being exposed to this. But so far, exposure is a big part of the problem. 
So I think this is a real problem, and I'm hoping that these social media, um, these social media components of carpentry, do lead to a comeback for this trade, because otherwise we're we're in a we're in a bind. We're on a bind. You want to comment on the carpentry shortage? Give me a call, 800-848-9222. The other thing I want to comment on, those of you that are on hold, stand by. I'm going to get to you in a second, but I have to mention this, and I'm not going to spend nearly as much time on this. Not that it's not important, but it's more easily explained, I think. Pool openings, which traditionally take place on Memorial Day weekend, many of them have been delayed due to a lifeguard shortage for the second summer in a row. So this lifeguard shortage, they're saying it could prevent about a third of more than 300,000 public pools from opening on time. The pools that do manage to open could see significantly reduced hours all because of this lifeguard shortage. And a lot of other pools may not be able to stay open through Labor Day. So this is more than just inconvenient for people. This means a decline in swimming lessons as those instructors need to be lifeguard certified. And that could lead to genuinely deadly consequences. And according to what uh, Bernard Fisher, the director of the um, director of health and safety at the Lifeguard Association, he told Axios, that means we're going to have increased drownings because of one of the things that you want to do is learn how to swim as early as possible. So this is a fella, Mr. Fisher, that has 50 years of lifeguard experience. He said he's never seen anything like this. And evidently it's due to a combination of the cancellation of J-1 exchange work visas and, you guessed it, the pandemic, which put lifeguard training on pause. I tell you, you notice the common theme here with anything we talk about. Everything got screwed up by the the lockdowns. And I'll tell you, the next pandemic that we have, I don't care whether it's bird flu or monkeypox, my view is going to be keep everything open. Keep everything open. I realize that sounds naive and that re- may sound short-sighted, but you compare the damage that these lockdowns did to society in this country, every aspect of society, to the real dangers of COVID. And I think we see which has been the bigger the bigger detriment to society. Again, I don't want to get on a whole rant about this, and I know people are going to disagree, but this is a big problem. Um, so I'm hoping we can do something about this lifeguard shortage as well. And... The carpentry shortage. 800-848-WABC, because both are concerning. And in the case of the lifeguard shortage, it's genuinely life-threatening. My wife, she writes for this uh, this government watchdog group, Open the Books. And they just put out a piece of uh, information, a piece of, like a, a, a paper, basically. Do you know what the top paid lifeguards in Los Angeles are earning right now? $510,000. $510,000. It pays to be a lifeguard right now, especially when there's a shortage. 1-800-848-9222. Marlon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Marlon. Hey, Frank. How you doing? I'm great, Marlon. Thanks. Uh, you know, I have never called before, and I'm on the uh, I'm in my car, 
do I have to turn the radio off or no? You, I, I don't know. I'm not you, sure. you, you absolutely do, and shame on Ryan for not telling you that. Okay, hold on. Let me just pull over two seconds. I just pulled over. I'm going to turn the radio off, and then I'm going to throw you on. Uh, hold on. All right, I'm going to put you on hold one second, Marlon, and uh, just do me the favor, Ryan. Make sure everyone has their radio turned off. Let me also give a shout-out to uh, my brother and future sister-in-law, Dr. Nicholas, and uh, future Mrs. Dr. Nicholas Moreno, uh, who are listening on their way to the airport. They are getting ready to board an airplane to Hawaii. Hopefully, there some of the airport lounges will be uh, open, and they'll get to avail themselves of some of the airport lounges that uh, that air- airport has to open. I got an email, because I'm flying out on Thursday. I got an email that indicates that because of some storms that we may experience Thursday, that uh, I-, I might have to experience flight delays. I hope that's not the case, obviously, but if that does happen, I hope that my American Express Platinum card gets me into a really deluxe airport lounge. All right, Marlon, we have your radio turned off now, which we're all excited about. What's yes. on your mind? Yes, sir. Uh, well, hey, first off, I just wanted to say, um, I guess I'm a long-time listener, but a new long-time listener. I love your show. Uh, you're the only guy I like to uh, or I ever entertain calling in well, well, that's, that's, very, years. that's very nice, Marlon. Now, when you say you're a new longtime listener, how does one become a new longtime listener? What, do, what does that mean? You hey, know, it's, it's, I'm, so I build high-end uh, sort of picture frames for museums and galleries. Oh. Right? It's a big uh, wood shop. But the business has grown substantially, actually, since the pandemic. I, uh, I grew pretty considerably over that period, and uh, which has led to a lot of late nights. Oh, uh, I got gotcha. So I just keep throwing you on on the way home, and it is just like, you know, you had Aaron Mate on uh, a month or so ago, and that was phenomenal. Oh, well, that's very nice of you. I appreciate that, Marlon. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, curious about the carpentry stuff. I mean, are you referring to, um, let's see, are you referring to, like, cabinets or stuff? Because what I was telling the uh, the call guy is, is basically uh, the carpentry field, all that high-end stuff, those guys get paid pretty well, right? But all their shops and stuff, they're all out in Long Island. They're mm. all uh, in Jersey. And my basic point is, you know, the rent in New York City is so high for an industrial, uh, you know, shop, it's, you know, it's very difficult to start, right? Like I moved, I moved back here in 2004 and I was able to get a space like 1100 square feet. And that was a thousand bucks then. Now it's, you know, 3,500. And, uh, I mean, I couldn't imagine doing that then, uh, doing, you know, now it's, it's just very different. But so I would say that the plumbers and the electricians, they can work out of a garage effectively. Uh, they're mobile. And the carpenters don't have that same luxury of mobility. But, I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, but your high-end stuff, all that, they need a big space. They I need got to you. do their work off-site. And, uh, and there's no there's, – I mean, gay. Listen, I've been doing this for 25 years now, and good luck. I, 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 wouldn't, want to go, I wouldn't want to start now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, clearly uh, no one else does either, Marlon. 
I know it's a shame, but I really blame uh, personally. You know, I mean, it's like either whether it's Democrat, Republican, whoever's in there, doesn't matter. They're all buddies with the developers. And, oh, and, and very and good that's point. It. Very good and, point, Marlon. And, and I'm telling you what's happening to real New Yorkers. We're, we're, we're few and far between these days. It is basically um, the artists, the interesting folks, the culture. It's not here anymore. And the, the reason is you can't afford it. That's it. Yeah. I we, mean, I, I grew up here, um, so it's a little different. And I, I've struggled. I've done my whole thing. And, and lucky for me, we're, we're in uh, you know, great shape right now. Everything's everything's working out. It's family business. It's cool. Um, but, you know, the, like, like I said, the rent right now currently for me is 20 grand a month. And that gets me uh, 10,000 square feet. Marlon, um, thank you for sharing that. I want to try and squeeze in a few other people here before we get to Tanya Ryman. But I appreciate the call. I hope you call again. 800-848-WABC. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. I'll be quick. Uh, First of all, a very safe trip to Hawaii. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm going to miss you because you're not going to be on the radio. But um, I send my best to your brother. Congrats. Um, as far as the carpenters, I think a lot has to do with what you were trying to get at. The younger generation with the uh, phones and the stuff, they're, they're leaning more towards technology versus uh, right. you know, uh, learning a trade and stuff like that. Well, we don't really um, encourage uh, learning uh, trades in general in schools, but especially carpentry. And I think that's a real a real shame that society has chosen to – emphasize this college-for-all approach. I agree with you 100%. Before you let me go, as far as your hose problem, I had the same issue with the – it's the retractable hose that's guaranteed for life. Yes. If you bring it back to Home Depot, they will exchange it no problem because there was defects with those. Oh, it's interesting. I think my wife already threw ours out, but I'll I'll run that by her. But but, but that's good for other people to know if they're experiencing the same thing. That's good to know. Thank you, Joe. I want to squeeze in one or two more quick people here before we get to the lovely uh, and very, very, very intelligent Tanya Ryman. Jair is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jair. Hello. How are you, Frank? Good to talk to you. Thanks. Uh, I'll be quick as well. I know you're stacked up. A couple of things. Number one, um, there is a large amount of uh, gay laborers and illegal immigrants that do carpentry for homes as well that are probably not being reported to the Carpentry Association, Um, which is, you know, that's the nature of the beast when you're in building. You know, everyone's trying to get the lowest uh, bid and stuff like that. Uh, As far as also vocational schools, I don't understand why parents want to send their children to be indoctrinated in the college now instead of making money. Uh, And number two, I was a lifeguard growing up. I made a ton of money as a teenager. It was great. Um, The glorification of lifeguards was taken off of TV with Baywatch. When you say it was taken off of TV, meaning meaning Baywatch caused the lifeguard profession to be glamorized and glorified? Glamorized and glorified, absolutely. The same reason why 
you know, a lot of times sports are. Yeah, no, well, that makes sense. I mean, you're seeing the same explosion right now in Formula One racing because of this show that's on Netflix. So do you think the solution is we need a a new Baywatch, a Baywatch 2.0, and that'll encourage more people to pursue lifeguarding as a career? Right, but we also have to kind of make it a little more realistic only because of the aging. I see, I see, gotcha. Gotcha. Makes sense. That's yeah, right. most lifeguards are 16, 17 years old. They're not right. 35 years old looking like David Hasselhoff and Pamela Anderson. Correct. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. JR, I got to run. Great points all. You know, that's interesting. Maybe we can combine those two thoughts. I, you know, again, this is one of my better ideas that you're about to hear, right? What we need is a Baywatch for carpenters, right? Like a carpenter, a carpentry show with all these sexy guys and girls, you know, having a hammer and sawing things and constructing things and all sorts of drama unfolds and they're solving crimes as they do the carpentry. And this way, everybody wants to pursue carpentry because of this new carpentry show. What could we call it? Maybe just maybe. uh, I don't know. I'm going to watch on this. I'm going to work on this. Maybe we'll call it Woodwatch. How do you like that Woodwatch? Right? Can't you see it? That big open with that dramatic music at the beginning, and they hammer the 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 the, the nails slowly, and then they do it in quick succession. Dun 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 dun. I can see it now. This is brilliant. I, I'd really like to pursue this if I could get financing for this. See, Woodwatch is filmed before a live studio audience. The stories you are about to hear are true. But the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Would watch. I like it. I like it. Uh, I'm going to work on this. I'm putting it in my ideas folder, and when I when I put something in my ideas folder, it's as good as done. Either that, or it just stays in my ideas folder forever because I don't have time to pursue any of these ideas. One of the two will happen. So I'll tell you what. Here's what we'll do. If you want to produce this, go ahead and produce it. And I'll sign away any intellectual property right. I'll give you a letter granting you the limited use of this idea of Woodwatch. Just make me like a consulting producer. That's a job I can handle. Just let me attend the staff meetings, give give you my two cents. Not too much work, not too much time. Invite me to the premiere and we'll call it even. All right. So if you're a television producer, and I know we have a lot of TV people that get up early to work on shows that listen in now. But if you're a TV producer, please uh, go ahead and pursue this idea. Just make me a consulting producer. That's the only thing that I'd ask. By the way, again, a big shout out to my brother, Dr. Nicholas Morano, who apparently now aspires to be a Formula One race car driver because he thinks anybody can do it. It's just driving. Now, he's never even ridden a go-kart before. But he is pretty good at driving a regular vehicle. I don't know about his situation with uh, Formula One. All right. You are in luck because Tanya Ryman is here. Uh, she is a body language expert. And I might add, and the irony is not lost on me, she happens to have a pretty impressive body herself. And she's going to be here, uh, which means we're all in luck. Th- uh, this is the other side of midnight straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
Well, speaking of fighting, uh, that is something that Amber Heard and Johnny Depp have been doing in a courtroom, and we've chronicled on this program before. This seems to be a case, unlike a lot of other celebrity trials, that the whole world is paying attention to. The ratings, the social media interaction, the shareability on so many different aspects of this Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial are unlike anything we've seen in quite some time. So for those of you that haven't been following this, deliberations uh, will enter a third day today. Still no verdict in this Johnny Depp and Amber Heard multi-million dollar defamation case. No verdict reached again yesterday after eight hours of jury deliberations on Tuesday. The jury, comprising five men and two women, were given 37 pages of instruction as they weighed Johnny Depp's $50 million defamation claim against Amber Heard and Heard's counterclaim of $100 million. Now, we've heard a lot from court watchers, but at least on this program, we haven't necessarily heard from a lot of body watchers. And one of my favorite body watchers is Tanya Ryman. She is a body language expert and author and just a a wonderful person that's a delight to talk to. And uh, she's kind enough to get up early and join us on the radio. Good morning, Tanya. It's been too long. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. This is a great day. Thanks. Now, why should um, we be paying attention to body language in general? Uh, Unlike uh, verbal language, body language is not something that uh, is generally taught in schools. It's not something that a lot of us necessarily are mindful about. Uh, Why should we be mindful of our own body language and others? Everything that you do conveys what you're thinking at a given moment, right? So that's why everybody's looking and they're going, oh, Johnny Depp is laughing. Oh, Amber Heard is a victim. It's make believe. So what winds up happening is we portray Mm. our thoughts, our beliefs, everything that we're living in any moment on our face and within our movements, our gestures. So people sometimes go on autopilot and they forget that other people are looking at them. And you think, well, that sounds kind of judgy. But the truth is, We have way too much input, especially visually, coming in for us to be always thinking about what somebody is doing. So what do we do? We chronicle what we know. We chronicle. We look at someone and we go, okay, neurons start firing off and all of this activity starts in the brain. And we start to look at people and decide if they're someone we'd be interested in. And we do that based on the fact that they're either like us or maybe we want to be like them. And then we go through mentally very quickly all the books we've read, all the movies we've seen, all the people we admire. And we try to decide if the person we're looking at can meet into the specific category that we want them to fill. And if they can, then that person becomes a yes. But if they can't, then that person becomes a no. And that's why it's so significant because you're literally walking down the street unconsciously going, no, 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 no. Oh, yes, yes, mm-hmm, yes, no, no, no. And you always want to be a yes, right? When you walk into the room, you want to be the yes person. You want to be the person everybody turns around and looks at. And that's what you get when you have nonverbal communication that says confidence, that says happiness, that says, hey, come, I'm approachable, come talk to me. Well, so that makes a lot of sense in terms of being mindful of our own body language. And I'm going to get some tips from from you in just a minute about how, how folks can do that. But why is it so important that we pay attention to 
the body language of others that we're interacting with, our coworkers uh, or friends or people we may want to be friends with, why is it so important that we that we watch the nonverbal signals they're sending? Well, because there are several reasons, but the most important one is you always want to be deciding as you're going if somebody is trustworthy, if they're credible, if they're being honest with you, if they're anxious or upset about something and they're trying to cover up. You know, maybe you have a friend who doesn't like to share their emotions, but their emotions come flooding out and you start to worry about them. Then you want to be able to dissect and figure out what you're seeing that's a deviation from their normal behavior. So if I'm talking to somebody, when I meet somebody or even if I know you forever, I go through in my mind within a snap second, I'm looking at how did you stand? How are you sitting? Are you orienting your body towards me? How fast are you speaking? How many words are you using? Are you using words that are visual, like, oh, I see that, auditory, like, oh, I hear you, or kinesthetic, like, oh, I really feel strongly about that. I take all of that in, and then, you know, I'm deciding at any given point as the conversation progresses, has there been a deviation from the behavior that they were showing originally. And if there is, then you know that that's a red flag. What happened to make the person go off their normal script, so to speak? Got it. And it's important because you want to be able to identify, number one, coworkers, making sure that they're genuine and they're looking out for your best interest. You also want to be able to do this with your friends, with your spouse, uh, your kids. It comes to the point where reading individuals isn't about making accusations or looking for deception so much as it is making sure that people are okay and that you feel like you can trust them. And believe it or not, it's not even just, you know, I'm reading someone. People have unconscious communication going back and forth. So if I look at you and you and I are having conversation and I'm picking things up from you, even though you might not realize it, my body language is going to shift and you're going to start getting this feeling like a gut instinct. And that's really what nonverbal communication is. It's a gut instinct. Yeah, did you always have a gift for this, or is this something that you that you studied in order to acquire the kind of expertise when it comes to body language that you have? I always had a gut instinct. I had a very interesting childhood, so I needed to see warning signals and recognize them quickly. So that started with me very young, and because I was so good at it, I just decided to look further into it and really do a study and figure out what it was all about, and how it worked. Because when I started realizing that I could read people so easily, I couldn't figure out what I was reading. I just knew. And obviously, you know, we're not playing mentalist here. It's something you look at them and you get a feeling. So what I wanted to do was understand where that feeling came from. So then you have to learn. Well, it came because I suddenly saw their eyes move to the left, when I know that they normally move their eyes to the right. Or maybe they picked up their pocketbook or a briefcase and they started holding it in front of them. Or maybe their feet got a little too close to my feet and I realized they were coming in, you know, to talk because they wanted something important. So all these little things started to be broken down for me and I started understanding why I was seeing the big picture and then getting the the minute details to really fixate and figure out what was going on with someone. And uh, let, uh, we're talking with Tanya Ryman, uh, one of the uh, nation's best known body language experts. She's also an author. You could check out her books on body language and nonverbal communication on her website, tanyaryman.com. That's uh, R E I M A N, not dot net, excuse me, tanyaryman.net. Uh, or you can just go to Amazon. There's some, they're on there as well. 
Uh, let me ask you about this Johnny Depp, Amber Heard uh, situation. Before we talk about the body language itself and what it's telling us about the players there, I mentioned earlier the incredible public interest that there seems to be in this case. Why do you think that is? Why do you think this case is capturing the attention and the imagination of so many people literally around the world? I think one of the main reasons is Johnny Depp is loved worldwide. And if you're watching this case play out, then you're seeing all the different characters that he ever played. You know, you're seeing a lot of Pirates of the Caribbean. You're seeing Edward Scissorhands. He's just, even Willy Wonka at a certain point. So he just falls into character. When he was talking about how Amber Heard had been throwing vodka bottles at him, he went right into sparrow mode. Like his whole voice changed. The lilt came in, the little. So he's doing this almost drama, this, this movie as it's going on because he keeps changing characters. So the question then becomes, who is the real Johnny Depp? And because we love him so much, she becomes the enemy, the automatic. She's crying all the time when he's laughing. You know, she's been caught in several lies. And even when he's caught in a deceit, he suddenly like kind of smugs, laughs it off and gets away with it in terms of what we're seeing from the sofa, not what they're seeing in court. You know, mm. the court is going to be different, obviously, because they are given a strict code of rules. But guess what? Even with that, people tend to go with their gut. One of the things we talked about in terms of studies is that better looking people and better liked people tend to have a better legal advantage. And I have a feeling we're going to see that play out in the end. Well, that's interesting. That is uh, it's certainly good news for those of us that are so good looking, isn't it, Tanya? It is. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but um, what about they both testified in this case so far, some very dramatic moments in their testimony. Is there anything that we can we can tell from their body language during their testimony itself about either how they're feeling as they're talking about these, I'm sure, very sensitive events for both of them, or anything about their truthfulness as they're testifying. Well, yeah, that's what the whole goal here is. So when people go through an emotion, they feel it first, and then they show it, and then they speak it. So what I mean by that is, you know, if Amber Heard is telling a story, what winds up happening, or Johnny Depp, whichever, is telling a story, what winds up happening is they'll have this, all of a sudden, this emotion will come through. And you can actually see their body start to change a little bit. And as they do, that's when they start to show it. So a story should be, it comes into my head, and then I start to display, if I'm going to do an animation of it, and then I speak about it. And Mm -hmm. going back to the vodka bottle, if you watch that part, Johnny Depp really did an amazing job. Because as he told the story, he's like, you know, I'm sitting there, and you see his eyes, like, almost like he's reliving. He's sitting at that bar and he's trying to really get the positioning right. And he's giving us, again, a little skit. And with that, you knew that to me was 100% honesty. Like when he was doing it, he didn't change at all. His mind kind of went. He started using what we call visual access cues, like looking up to really visualize it in his head. And then he went to his ears, like looking to the side, which means he's now listening to what she's saying and then he, you know he does the whole demonstration how she comes around the bar and he's doing all this animation and he's doing it com- like completely synced in time with the words and that's one of the things you look for are the words and the movements in sync because 
if the movements come before the words, it's not bad. But if the words come before the movements, usually that means that somebody is using their gestures as an afterthought. And that usually means that they're being deceptive. What can we learn from watching the body language of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard while the other is testifying? Are you seeing anything noticeable in Johnny Depp, for instance, while Amber Heard is on the witness stand testifying about some very, very heated accusations? Oh, a complete lack of respect. And I think he's doing that intentionally to bring her down. Like, you know, oh, here she goes again, whining. Oh, this. Yeah. He, it demeans everything she's bringing to the forefront. And he does that intentionally, like even those little interactions with his attorney and he doesn't even look at her. It's almost as if he's just there having lunch and not paying attention to the person in the box. (laughs) So with Amber, she keeps looking at him Mm. and he just will not give her his eyes. Uh, What about when um, you mentioned the interaction with Johnny Depp's attorney? You know, I've observed a lot of uh, trials in person, and I think it's pretty rare, except in a criminal case when the verdict is read, for an attorney to be hugging uh, their client. And now I see Johnny Depp and his, his attorney hugging one another pretty regularly. One... Is that contrived, do you think? Is that meant to send a message to the jury? And, and two, if it's not contrived, if it's, that, if it's genuine, what does that tell, you, tell us about where Johnny Depp's head is at the moment? Well, the way we know Johnny Depp is he's, he is a little bit insane. There's no doubt about that. Mm. So I wouldn't put it past them to try to do that, but I don't think it's genuine. From her perspective, I think she's eating it up. Like I watched... As she was walking out of court, I think it was that day, and everyone's like, oh, my goodness, are, are you seeing him? Are you to a couple? You know, And she was just gloating. She was really enjoying that moment. And if it was that obvious, I don't think that there would be a whole lot of talk of the man in her life. And there is a whole lot of talk about that. So I think that that's more contrived than anything else. And she's just reaping the rewards. It's kind of like the halo effect. Here I am seen hugging Johnny Depp. What can that do for my career? Got I'm it. 37 years old. I'm going to explode it. Right. Got it. Uh, understood. In terms of um, a prediction, obviously you, you haven't seen all the testimony that the jurors have, but it sounds like you have a, a pretty good you know, feel for the body language of the attorneys, the people testifying, and the other observers. Can you offer any sort of a prediction? What does your gut tell you? And we know your gut leads you usually to a pretty good place about what the verdict is going to be here. I, I would think it would fall into Johnny Depp's favor. Really? Really? Very very interesting. Uh, we're talking with Tanya Ryman. Uh, you can check out her website, tanyaryman.net. A couple of great books about body language on there. And uh, really, it's going to be very interesting to watch over the net course of the of the next few days. Hey, um, if we're looking for ways that we can improve our own body language, what should people be mindful of? And you, you mentioned looking like you w- walking into a room and having a presence. And I think everybody has known folks in their life that you immediately notice when they walk into a room, even if they're not famous, even if they've not said anything because of the manner in which they handle uh, themselves. What are some common mistakes that we make in our body language and maybe some that are easily correctable? Well, a lot of times people will almost sneak into the room. Like they don't like the attention on them. So they'll 
sneak into the room and avoid looking at individuals. They won't smile at others. And they'll find just a little secluded me spot, so to speak. Like when I walk into a room, for the most part, I'm waving. I don't, I could be waving at a wall. You know, I'm waving at a poster. I'm waving at a mirror. (laughs) I walk into a room and I wave and I smile and I make eye contact and I go over and I try to make a small talk with as many people as I can. And by me walking in with that presence and waving, people start to think, oh, Tanya, she must know people here. And then they migrate towards me because they're thinking, hmm, she must be pretty interesting. She knows a lot of people here. So it's really about making sure you're able to hold eye contact and listen more than you speak. So what we found is, you know, when you're listening to somebody, if you're holding their eye contact, and of course, this is cultural, but you're smiling appropriately, you're nodding to tell them that you're listening, your posture is good and strong, and you're not, you know, shallowed over and hunched. That's a really important piece, as well as giving yourself. And what I mean by that is, if I'm sitting in a chair and you walk over to me, I'm going to orient myself towards you. So you feel like, hey, Tanya's approachable, easy to talk to. And it just takes a little bit of the pressure off of you because you don't have to feel like, oh, my goodness, how am I going to be able to approach her? And is there going to be conversation? So it's more about looking the part. And then after you've done that a while, you actually become that person and you no longer have to look the part. Hmm. You also want to be vocally interesting. And what I mean by that is, you know, you want to have a strong vocal attention. You want to be not loud, but maybe a little bit louder than the person whispering next to you. You also want to make sure that you keep your voice going up and down slightly because no one really loves monotony. So, you know, you think of that uh, Bueller. Right, right. Ben Stein. Sure. Yeah, right. So you want somebody who can be melodious and that also keeps people who are geared more towards auditory to tune into you. So you visually want to take control and then auditorily, you want to make sure that you're using melodious language and you're giving other people an opportunity to speak and you're nodding and you're holding eye contact and you're smiling and you look inviting. Those are the things that really make a difference because very quick that you, you, uh, sorry to interrupt, uh, Tanya. Very, no. very quickly, because I just wanted to ask you about this, and we're just about out of time, but I didn't want to let the conversation go without asking you about this. What role does sense of smell play, and uh, what should people keep in mind as sort of they plan the scent that they're putting out to the world? That's the most important question. So we all give off scent on our own, a natural scent. And, you know, you could call it pheromones, you can call it whatever you want. But we know for sure that our chemicals change based on us smelling men and men smelling women, etc. going back and forth. So having said that, we tend to be a little bit turned off by regular scents that are manufactured. Here's the difference. We tend to like things like vanilla, uh, baby powder, lavender, those scents are the ones that we really enjoy. Sandalwood is another one. So what winds up happening is just as a quick story, you know, you're going out on a date and you just got divorced and your wife wore, I don't know, Red Door or something like that. And, you know, you go and you meet this woman and things seem to be going great, but something's not right. And then at the end of the day, you find out that she's wearing Red Door and you just have a negative mm imprint automatically scent is the oldest sense that we have and because of that we rely on it you know we had sense before we had words obviously so smelling rotten meat you know that was one of the ways that we were able to live a little bit longer and recognizing that certain scents 
are sour and no good, and other scents are inviting. So scent is the most important scent. Tanya, we're going to have to end it there. It is always such a treat talking with you, and uh, I'll look forward to our next interaction on the radio and hopefully in person as well. Thank you, Frank. I hope you have a great day, and good luck to your brother. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm hoping he was taking notes uh, for the for the ceremony about what what body language he should be putting out there at the uh, at the wedding on uh, on Friday. Uh, 800-848-WABC. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, this is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. funny to me a funniest moments that i've experienced via sms text message the other day was last thursday night i was at that uh, tracy morgan event and i see i get an sms text message from our owner john katsimatidis and whenever i get an owner from a text message from john katsimatidis that immediately gets my attention and i see who else this was sent to peter king um, Rich Radabali, who's one of the producers here, Dominic Carter, our program director, Matt Meany, our president, Chad Lopez, Rita Cosby, Curtis Sliwa, R- Lydia Serrani, uh, Richard Swartz, our vice president of news. And so John sends an article to everyone on that. And then someone responds to John Katsimatidis in this group text and says, I'm sorry, I who is this? I can't identify the number. And John Katsimatidi, now all I'm thinking is, I mean, <laughs> who is this saying, seeing who's on this thread, that, that they don't know who John is? And so John responds very humbly, it's Katz. And then my response is, who is the 917 number, and how do they not know your number? Sure enough, it was Bob Brown. So I, I can bet. That's a mistake he won't make again. Bob Brown's one of our news anchors. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. So because of our shortened week, because we were off Monday for Memorial Day, and uh, I'm going to be off Friday to attend my brother's wedding in Hawaii, we did not get to go through the mail this week. And there's some interesting mail, some interesting snail mail that I'm collecting for next Tuesday, and uh, some interesting email as well. But there was one email that I received from a listener, a great listener named Ellen, who that it really ha- caused me to think a great deal. Now, I read just about every email, unless you get so annoying to the point that I have to block you, then I don't read any of your emails. So that's your disincentive for not being overly annoying via email. Now, I don't always, you know, I, I read it and usually I'll respond And I don't think twice about it. I move on. But this is one of those emails that I've been thinking about for a few days now. And I'm going to give you my best response to it. And then I want to invite you to respond to it. I know you have many, many friends. What do you consider to be characteristics of a good friend? And I'll be honest, I really did think a great deal about this because that word friend gets thrown around way too often. And a lot of times we use that word friend when we really mean acquaintance. Uh, So I came up with seven characteristics that I think make a good friend. But as I give you mine, I'd love to hear yours. What do you think makes a good friend? What are the characteristics of a good friend? I'm going to give you mine, but tell me yours. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. The first might be obvious, but I'll state it anyway. I think a friend should be someone that you genuinely enjoy Spending time with. Now, I know there are times when all of us can be annoying, even to our friends and our loved ones. And so I'm not saying that a friend always has to be someone that you enjoy spending time with. But by and large, when you hear that you have to make that you're going to see so and so for lunch or dinner or drink or a cup of coffee, whatever, it should be someone that you look forward to seeing. So that's number one. Someone that you enjoy spending time with. Again, this is in the Frank Morano book. And what does my book account for, right? I mean, who knows? Two, a friend should be someone that you have respect for. And not someone that you look down upon. Not someone that you um, think that you're slumming it by hanging out with. A friend should be someone that you really have a great deal of respect for, for whatever reason. Maybe it's their intellect. Maybe it's their kindness. Maybe it's their the fact that they're a hard worker. Maybe it's the fact that they're a great parent. Maybe it's the fact that they, you know, give money to charity. Maybe it's the fact that they're a good runner. Whatever. A friend should be someone that you respect, ideally on multiple levels, but at least on some level. Three, and I don't think this can be overstated, a friend really needs to be, in my view, Someone that you can trust. I don't want to say trust with your life because that's serious stuff. 
But I think a friend should be someone that you can trust with a secret or trust to give you advice if you come to them that's in your interest, not that's somehow going to suit their interests. Four, sort of semi-related to trust. Four, a friend should be somebody that you can rely on or that you're you or that you have previously been able to rely upon a friend of mine uh, 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 this is a genuine friend who fits all these criteria friend of mine my friend joe was over in uh, on saturday when my wife was out for this uh, bachelorette party and he was describing a friend of his that he served in iraq with i don't remember if it was when he was a marine or when he was a civilian contractor And it's a friend of his that lives in another part of the country. And he said, I could call this guy up now. Let's call him John. That's not his name, but let's call him John. I could call this guy up now. I could call John up now and tell him I need something. He will be here right away. He will leave and, and head up. Now, that's a real friend. Five is I really think for a friendship to work, there's got to be a mutual bond of affection. If, um, you know, I think the world of Alex Barnard, but he doesn't care for me, then that's not really mutual affection, right? That's, I really like somebody, I'm an admirer of someone, and they don't care about me at all. So, and I think that happens more than people realize. At number six, I think a a friend has the ability to make you feel good in some way, meaning they make you feel valuable or important or that you matter. And that's also something that I think is uh, important. And then, I don't know, I I keep saying each one of these characteristics is the most important, but I think this one really might be. And I'm sorry I didn't get to ask Anthony Weiner about this yesterday because Anthony Weiner has seen... Life when it's really good, like when you're getting elected to the city council, when you're getting electing, elected to Congress, when you're marrying a beautiful woman at a ceremony that's presided over by a former president, when you're the leading Democratic candidate for mayor in a city that's overwhelmingly Democrat. And then he's seen times when it's very, very tough, like when you're a, a punchline on all the late night talk shows or worse yet of being forced to leave your job because of a scandal, or worse yet, heading off to prison in public disgrace. And to me, a friend is somebody that's there for you when times are tough, when you're publicly disgraced, when you're fired, when you're heading off to jail, when you're in prison. A friend, a real friend, is somebody that's there for you when the chips are down. Not somebody who, I remember, you know, uh, my friend George Weber, who worked here, who was a news anchor, he was murdered. And in the aftermath of his murder, in the immediate aftermath, people were running to say what a great guy that he was. Running. I mean, from top to bottom. Then, when more and more details about his murder were revealed, and it, you know, became revealed that he was murdered by someone that he met on Craigslist. And there may have been a sexual element to the, uh, you know, to the to their interaction. You should have seen people running to distance themselves from him running. 
there was a, a you know a, I mean very very prominent talk show hosts that George thought he was their friend when he was alive, and they couldn't distance themselves enough from him when it became something that might make them look bad. So uh, that's not a friend. That's an opportunist. So those are my seven definitions, my seven characteristics of friendship. One, somebody you enjoy spending time with. Two, someone you respect. Three, someone you trust. Four, someone that you can rely on. Five, someone that you experience a bond of mutual affection with. Six, someone who makes you feel valuable in some way. And then lastly, somebody that's there for you and you know will be there for you when the times are tough. 800-848-WABC. What what do you think the characteristics of a friend are? 800-848-WABC. George is in Queens. Hello, George. Hey, morning, Frank. How you doing? Morning. You know, I'm driving to work, and I was thinking about what you were saying. I said, I got to pick this one up. So I think, like, my best friend, <clears throat> you can, I can actually, we don't, you know, you know, when you get older, you, we, we grow, not grow apart, but we, we move around the country. So I was telling him, my wife, I was like, you know, I could call this guy any time mm-hmm. of the night. Mm-hmm. If I lost everything, I mean everything, I could show up on his doorstep. He wouldn't ask the question. It's, the house is yours, whatever you need, right? Don't want to know, but like a true brother. Um, you got kids, you know, like the godfather, right? You drop the kids off, you won't even lose sleep. Right. You know, he's like you, right? Or you, your characteristics, um, you could depend on him. And like you said, at your worst times, at your worst time, your friend will never turn their back on you, no matter what. Even if it's unbelievable, I'll be there for you. And, and that's one of the greatest friends to have. And you don't have to call them every day because, you know, we all have um, complicated lives. Sure. But your friend, you know, your friend, you call them three years later. Hey, how you doing? It's like you, you guys were together yesterday. It's a, it's a bond and a love that it's probably timeless. George, that is uh, well done. Well done, George. I completely agree with everything that you said. And the one thing that you said, George, which I didn't mention in my remarks, is the length of time. Right. So the the people that I consider really close friends, there are some that I don't talk to all that often because, you know, I'm kind of busy. They're kind of busy. But as as George said, when the chips are down, you know, you can count on them even if you don't speak to them every day, even if you haven't spoken to them in years. And that is something that's important and that I, I didn't I didn't think to mention. There are a lot of relationships, I'm thinking mostly of work relationships, that as soon as you stop seeing that person, let's face it, the relationship is over. But a real friend, passage of time doesn't do anything to diminish the closeness of your bond. 800-848-WABC, Frankie is in Glendale. Hello, Frankie. I, it might sound strange to you, but you know, like uh, what we're sharing common interests. Uh, you know, there's Joey from Ronkonkoma. Well, I consider him to be a friend, and he considers me to be a friend. We meet, uh, we met through because of your radio show. Oh, well, and you're welcome. Go, and going to car shows. Um, also, I have a colleague. We share uh, common interests. We're both uh, members of the Knights of Columbus. We go out now. Uh, uh, you know, we play golf. Uh, but you know that they're a good guy or a good girl, whatever. 
And um, you got respect. You know, the person has, uh, well, for me, dignity and honor mean things to me, not that they're a piece of garbage, you know? Frankie, that's great. Uh, you know, um, I appreciate the call. I, I totally get what Frankie is saying there. The one thing that maybe I part company a little bit with, and by the way, I'm glad I was able to forge a friendship with two of our listeners. Our listeners are great people just by the fact that they're listening to this show. You know, you could always tell the people that don't listen to our show because they're, they're jerks. They're, they're, you, you could just tell. But the people that do listen, they're all really nice people. Now, and that's why I want to try and get as many of them as possible kidneys. 800-848-WABC. The one thing that I was going to say about Frankie from Glendale that maybe I part company with a little bit, very mildly, is the area of common interest. I think you can have a friend that shares none of the same interests as you, doesn't like the same sports, doesn't like the same TV shows, the same radio shows, doesn't even own a TV or show, doesn't even own a television set or a radio. But for some reason, you enjoy their company, and you can trust them, and you can rely on them. And they're going to be there for you when you're having a tough time, even if they're not interested in the same things that you're interested in. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to another Frank, this time on Long Island. Hello, Frank. Hey, Frank. I would You hit it all, but the only thing I would change up a little bit, sometimes I have different criteria for friends from different places. For example, people I grew up with since first grade versus people I've worked with professionally versus some people I've met along the way who've become very important family, friends. I have little di- different expectations, and it's always important that to me that I have higher expectations for them than they might have for me in terms of returning favors and things like that. Um, you know, I don't want them turning into oh, my friend is a, somebody who has to help me all the time. It's somebody I'm willing to help, too. But uh, like I said, I, I think, you know, to say all friends, all criteria for all things, mm, I like to switch them up a little bit, you know, family friends versus work friends. Well, I, I guess I'm not clear. I'm, I'm not. I, and I, I think I get the gist of what you're saying, Frank. But I, I guess what I'm not clear on is what is the different criteria? Let's say you have a friend from growing up and you have another friend from that, you know, from work, let's say. What is the different criteria that you're you're ascribing friendship characteristics to each of those people differently? What is the difference? Well, I would say first and foremost, particularly people from work and the people who's let lately, your expectations for them, what you would do for them, what you what they would do for you, uh, I think is different from say someone you grew up with. So this you're saying there's a higher um, expectation for a new friend versus an older friend. It would depend on the person. I mean, professional people who I meet over a long way, I don't expect them to come run into my house to help me with a health issue, for example. But I do expect them to be trustworthy in the workplace. I do expect them to uh, be my friend, you know, casually, you know, maybe do things with me, you know. But, but for example, my family friend, I'll do anything anything for a family friend because I know any family friend will do absolutely anything for me. Well, it's different from someone I work with. Well, thank you, Frank. I I guess I would not, if that's your characteristic, I wouldn't consider the late, I don't know, the former group. 
I wouldn't consider that person a friend. I'd consider them a professional acquaintance that you have pleasant interactions with at work. I'd consider them a responsible coworker. I consider them somebody that you run into, you have a decent enough interaction, but I, I just consider that person an acquaintance. To me, th- it doesn't matter whether you know someone from work or from kindergarten or because your your children play baseball together. To me, the definitions, my characteristics don't don't change depending on the circumstance. But what do I know? 800-848-WABC. Riley is in Brooklyn. Hello, Riley. Riley? Hello? Hello? It's Larry, not Riley. Ah, I'm sorry. You got Ryan. Oh, well, I got who? Uh, Larry, what's on your mind, Larry? Okay. Uh, well, okay. Frag, you hit it. You, uh, I, was, I was scanning your seven definitions because I knew what the one definition was, and, and I think did Frank hit it and cover it? And sure enough, you did. And I'll tell you how we, we, we know what a friend is. You see, we have to look at women to know what the definition of a friend is. Because men are pack animals. They have multiple kinds of relationships, whereas women are solitary creatures. Why? Because they have to be discovered by a man, so they have to really essentially be alone. So when, women, when a woman has somebody with her, that's a true friend. And what women have as, as, as accompanying them are people that make them feel valuable, which is one of the criteria that you listed. See, men have most, so many different types of relationships. The one that's really a friend is the one that makes you feel valuable. And I'll tell you, I have a friend that I haven't spoken to in 40 years. We were best friends in high school. I recently called him up. He's the head of a top – he's a very big executive. And what I, when I called him up, I suddenly realized – I had to make sure my surroundings were pristine. Nobody heard anything I said, whereas I don't have any other relationships like that. Why? Because when I spoke to him, it was so much from the heart because this guy made me feel valuable. And whatever I said there, that therefore, was was genuine, authentic, and valuable. Mm. And I didn't want anybody to hear. Well, yeah. No, I, I get it. Thank you, Larry slash Riley. Uh, Ryan, how did you get Riley from Larry? I mean – I would think the more common name, I get that they sound alike, and I'm not reproaching you for that, but I, the more common name is is Larry. I mean, I mean, Riley takes a little bit more out of a leap, I would think. Well, yeah, true, but um, to be fair, his audio quality, I did hear a little bit of Riley in there, so. Okay, and do you ever like, double-check with them and say, oh, it's Riley, not Larry? Oh, yeah, but I felt certain that his name was Riley in that moment. Certain, okay. Is there anybody else that you have a similar degree of certitude with that's on the on the board right now? Definitely original Rick. I original would say. Rick. I don't think you could really mess up that name if I'm honest. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's see if you're right, Rick in New Jersey. If that's your real name, hello. Yeah, he got the original right. Wow. All right. His his reputation is redeemed. Yes. Yes. Anyway, uh, Frank, uh, this has to do with the lack of carpenters. Mm-hmm. I think it has to you, – you hit it uh, on uh, the nail on the head. I'm just going to – And I'm not even a carpenter. That. No, either am I. But I, I have worked with many of them. Um, you said there's no more shop classes anymore. That has a lot to do with it. You know, it, 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 uh, allowing people to get involved early with their hands, that's important. We don't mm. do that anymore. Right. Uh, think about it. When's the last time you heard of anyone getting a set of Lincoln logs for a toy? 
You know, that's a great point. Uh, and uh, I'm going to make sure somebody buys my son some Lincoln Logs for his, I and guess, when a, you're around two or three. And an erector set. Yeah. No, also a good yeah. point. Also a good point. You know, it, that's the way you, you learn your kids' ability and what they love. I had an erector set, a Lincoln Logs, and a chemistry set. I did much better with the chemistry. So that's that's where my you know, folks put, okay, let's give them. That kind of an uh, yeah. indoctrination. Yeah, no, that's – I like that. I, that's, that's good, yeah. Rick. Uh, I like that a lot. That's good. Yeah, I, I see – look, I'm looking online here. Lincoln Logs look to be okay for children three and up. So we'll wait two and a half years before we get them some Lincoln Logs. 800-848-WABC. Kurt is on Staten Island. Hello, Kurt. Kurt, I'm, or or whatever your name oh. is online. Oh. Oh. Are you actually Kurt? Get you off speakerphone, huh? Are you actually Kurt, or do you have some other name? No, I'm I'm really Kurt. Okay, wonderful. You (laughs) slipped through the cracks. You slipped through the cracks. You you want to know what I want? There is, there is. I I cannot add anything to your list, but the two things that stick out most for me for a friend are respect and to make that person feel feel special. Yeah. uh, Well, good. You know, Uh, good. I mean, mutual respect and, and, and make it feel special. I mean, I mean, you can't say anything more than that. Your list was perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Kurt. Appreciate yeah, it. I'll right. see you out there. Your on... list was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you out there on The Rock, okay? Okay, I'll see you, bud. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Pamela is in central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Hi. Uh, I guess this is inclusive of, you know, spending time with them. But I, I know that you have to have somebody that is on the same communication style as you, like understand sarcasm mm. and um, otherwise, you know, forget it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if one person has a very sarcastic way of speaking and another person sort of doesn't get sarcasm, that's a friendship that you don't think is going to last. Right. Amongst, you know, other styles. Like, um, you know, it's really understanding you and getting you. And um, I can remember my sister's friends and everything talking about certain things. And to this day, we use those Q words and we use the sarcasm. And kind of like the other night you were talking about references and everything. And there's, a, you know, um, and it's not to be like, uh, you know, hoity-toity or anything, but they have to they have to get it. They have to kind of get it. Otherwise, it. the conversation falls dead. And, and you know, you find yourself sometimes if you're missing somebody who's like that, you know, you try to make somebody into that person because you miss them. They, maybe they moved away or whatever. Or, and uh, and you, you miss that. That's a very strong part of uh, the relationship. Well, that's interesting, Pamela, and I have to say that's one that I hadn't really considered, but thank you for bringing that up. 800-848-WABC. Sean is in Park Ridge. Hello, Sean. Hey, Frank. Uh, I actually have two actually encompassed in one uh, good example, and uh, the two are uh, the person is happy for your success, and also um, even if they're not interested in the subject matter you're interested in, they're willing to, you know, entertain you. And so my example is, you know, I, I wrote a book and I, I sent it to you. Well, I had a book signing at a local library, which was really nice. And I told my friend about it, and he didn't even know I wrote a book. And actually, he was not even interested in the subject matter whatsoever. It just didn't, you know, interest him. But he was so excited 
that I was having a book signing, and that I was at the local library and all that, that he went, and he was like one of the most excited persons there. So um, it really kind of touched me because, again, I knew he had no interest in the subject matter. Mm. Well, that is interesting. I, you know what? That's that's a good one, and uh, and it's one that uh, that I that I should have included somehow in one of my characteristics because that is good and that is important. A friend definitely is willing to sacrifice uh, sort of their own time and interest to benefit yours, and that's why I think sometimes the the area of common interest doesn't necessarily indicate what a true friend is. I think you can have totally different interests. And, you know, the fact that, um, you know, my Uncle Caesar, who I was very close to, he passed away. He uh, died a long life. He died at the age of, uh, I don't know, 92 or so. And he, I talked about him at the time that he passed away. But it was really a remarkable guy, a brilliant man, brilliant speaker, a brilliant engineer, worked for Boeing, also a uh, a full colonel in the U.S. Air Force, served in three wars, World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. A brilliant man and very erudite and intelligent. You know, even when he was in his 80s, he was just trouncing me in jeopardy. But I remember a conversation we had around the time that he was 90. He was driving me. I was in San Diego for his birthday, and he was driving me to uh, the radio station to do a test of because I was going to do the show from there. I don't know why I just didn't take off. I should have taken off. But I was going to do the radio show from there, and he's driving me around at 90. And he was telling me about how bitter he was. Now, obviously, both of his parents had been dead for decades. His brother, dead for decades. And he was telling me how upset he was that... He was a a champion fencer, and his brother Sammy was a baseball player. Not at any advanced level, but just, you know, in the neighborhood, high school, whatever. And his parents would, or especially his father, would always go to his brother's baseball games, but they never went to any of his fencing matches. And, you know, he was really upset, and this is, again, the guy was 90 at the time that he's telling me this. He was really upset that 80 years ago, nobody was going to his fencing matches from his family. And I guess from his father's perspective, you know, his father was an Italian immigrant. From his father's perspective, you know, he just didn't get fencing. But it clearly would have meant a great deal to his son if he would have sacrificed his own interest for his son's which in this case meant going to fencing and showing the same enthusiasm for fencing that you do for baseball. 800-848-9222. Mike is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. How you doing, Frank? You know, Mr. Casamatias, when he ran for mayor, made a big issue about trade school. Yes, that's right. You know, you know big issue about it. One of the reasons why... I like Mr. Casmatias. Same. I'm 64. I have a friend for 64 years. Best friend. We lived next door to one another at 10. He went to one side of Brooklyn. I stayed in the side I was at. We still hung out. 10 years old now. We still hung out with each other practically every day. Jump buses, jump trains, any way to hang out with one another. Uh, he's my son's godfather. His wife is the godmother. We talk now 
sometimes it might be six months. Then we'll just, he'll pick up the phone and call. I'll pick up the, we haven't seen each other in, I mean, it's got to be seven years maybe as far as see each other. Uh, but we talk on a, on a pretty a pretty regular basis. Uh, my son, talking about friends, he had, talking about kidneys, he had a friend in college and a friend needed a kidney. He had three kids. What my son do? He gave him his now kidney. Kidney. That's wonderful. You know, that's that's a that's uh, a young man that's raised right. I'll tell you one thing, Frank. One thing I, I'll give you a little advice: skip the trip to Hawaii, or else you're going to hear about it later on in life. I I, I will tell it. you, Mike. You know, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but uh, I'm not going to skip uh, my brother's wedding. I can't do it. Can't do it. Not going to do it. Uh, and you know what? My wife would not want me to. Honestly, eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Vinny is in Caldwell. Hello, Vinny. Hey, Donnie Frank. Good. Uh, I feel a friend should never lead another friend in any hazardous uh, habits or behaviorisms that negatively affected their own lives, especially drugs and alcohol, of course. But uh, the worst of it, if a friend tries to bring romantic involvement with a wife or a girlfriend of a friend. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, that's that's interesting. Uh, so so one one friend shouldn't lead another down a pathway of deleterious behavior and the other one is you shouldn't you know like the old ten commandments say covet your neighbor's wife yes sir well, that's uh, that's good advice Vinny. you you follow those two rules you'll stay pretty close to the straight and narrow bruce is in brooklyn hello bruce hi you touched on all the main points but a great friend is a good listener it's mm. like why we like the talk it's not judgmental and you can have a great social life with acquaintances, but when you have that emergency, you got divorced or death in the family, you need a good friend who listens and uh, paraphrases and uh, gives support. Yeah, uh, that's an important one, Bruce, and th- that's a good one, and I think you're right. You you mentioned dogs there, right? Right. Yeah, I, I think that's a lot of, of the reason why people do come to view their pets as their best friends because your pet doesn't judge you. For all the mistakes that you've made, if you, you know, come home late, if you break a promise, if you steal something, if you get drunk, if you sleep with the wrong person, if you quit your job when you shouldn't, people um, would be very, very reasonable in judging you for those things. But a pet never will. And I think to Bruce's point, maybe maybe that is a definition of a friend that I hadn't considered including is, you know, it is nice to have a friendship that's sort of a judgment free zone. That's a good one. I like that. All right. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to give you an opportunity to win one thousand dollars. If you would like to be considered for the thousand dollar minute, be the seventh caller right now. To 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. One fella emailed me that yesterday's first two questions or first three questions were way too easy. And then the fourth question was way too hard. And, you know, I mean, that is chapter 27 in why you can't please anybody. Too easy, too hard. People are never satisfied. But if you want to take your chances at uh, answering 10 questions in 60 seconds 
and maybe win $1,000. Then be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. WABC. That my best friend, she a real bad got her own money. She don't need no n- on the dance floor. She had two, three drinks. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Time now for us to try and give away one thousand dollars because it's time for the other side of midnight presents. It's the thousand dollar minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Uh, thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's meet today's contestant, Mike, in Manhattan. Hello there, Mike. How you doing? I'm well, Mike. You familiar with this contest? Sure. Okay, great. So uh, simple as can be, timer will start after the first question. You get a question right, we're just going to move on to the next one so that we can get to all ten, okay? Okay. All right. What season comes immediately after spring? Summer. What month started today? June. Name two states that begin with the word new. New York, New Jersey. Who was the primary writer of the Declaration of Independence? Uh, Thomas Jefferson. What filmmaker directed Titanic and Terminator? Uh, Cameron. Who is WABC's morning traffic reporter? Uh, uh, Debbie Duhane. Oh, uh, no, I'm sorry. She's on another yeah, I knew you were going to get because I really don't listen to WABC much. Uh, well, I'm glad we, we tricked you into listening today. Mike, you did make yeah. it up to question six. Who was it? Who, Joe who, Nolan. I, Joe Nolan, who I mentioned earlier as uh, well. I don't, but, uh, I don't listen to you know traffic reports anyway. Well, well we're thinking of adding traffic to this hour, yeah. Mike, so we hate to lose you yeah. from that guy in Pennsylvania. Yeah. All right, Mike, well, we're going to give you a consolation prize. You did you did well. You were at a good good pace. And uh, I'm going to give uh, we're going to give you to Ryan. Ryan's going to take your information and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll give you a piece of swag that's pretty good that will lead you to listen to WABC in the future. Thank you. Debbie used to do the traffic here years ago in the previous iteration of the morning show, but she hasn't done it in about uh, close to 10 years, roughly. Ballpark. So Debbie's great. Debbie and I are still friends. Debbie's listening right now, probably. Debbie listens to me on her way in. but uh, And I'm not taking anything away from Debbie's traffic skills. Very good traffic reporter. Uh, by the way, speaking of Joe Nolan, if uh, you would like to help him out with the foundation that he has for his mom, well, it's named for his mom. She passed away. It's called the Maureen Nolan Foundation. You can go to their website, mnolanfoundation.org, and let him know you're making a donation because you heard about it on this show. This way he knows where his bread is buttered. We had a, a great time at the uh, the Crab's Claw in Lavalette last Friday. The the fella who uh, owns the Crab's Claw, a really interesting guy. And I got to meet a lot of the other, quite a few listeners were there. Donna from Huntington came, and uh, she brought a friend of hers. 
Donna made the trip all the way from Long Island, which is really, I mean, it's a hike for me from Staten Island. But she made the trip all the way from Long Island, which was super nice. The owner is uh, a fellow by the name of Sam Hammer. So if you ever make a trip over to the Crab's Claw, see if Sam Hammer's around. He's got some really interesting stories. I'm not sure how many I should be sharing, so I'll I'll leave it at that. But um, you want to call in on anything else that we've discussed today, you can do so, 800-848-9222. It's 1-800-848-WABC. I do want to remind you uh, to listen not only to the WABC Early News featuring Deb Valentine, but also to um, Joe Nolan, who's going to be doing the traffic, and yours truly. I do the business there. And uh, then the Bernie and Sid show is coming up at uh, 6 o'clock. They're on from 6 to 10. Guests on the Bernie and Sid show today include Congressman Peter King, who's going to be here at 840, and the hockey player Ron Duguay, who in addition to playing for the Rangers years ago, also, I believe, is the current longtime companion of Sarah Palin, former Alaska governor who's running for Congress in Alaska right now. Meantime, the big news for those of us here on the uh, on the floor here is that my Aunt Camille has given us a fresh batch of egg salad that is now in the refrigerator that everybody's welcome to. Uh, Matt Blaze, did you notice any of the egg salad out there tonight? I noticed. I found out about it a little late. Oh, you did? Okay. But did I did you, find out. Did you try it yet? Not yet. No, but you but you got to try it. It's Hopefully a, it'll be there tomorrow. Fresh batch. Uh, well, maybe on the way out. Yeah. I'll grab some. Uh, she also gifted me a marble pound cake as well. So if anyone's in the mood for marble pound cake, that's in our kitchen area as well. Now, uh, 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame coming up in about... Ten minutes. Uh, I am looking forward. You know, the caller mentioned before that I should not go to Hawaii because my wife's not coming, which I think is just ridiculous. Um, you know, it's not like I'm going to be on some some um, singles cruise trying trying to pick up women. I'm going to be surrounded by by my family, right, and wearing a, a wedding ring. So I, I don't know what um, what the caller was talking about there, but I am looking forward to that trip. Not only because I've never been to Hawaii, I'm told it's really, really nice, but I am looking forward to the flight itself. Uh, I'm a guy that really enjoys having time to read or watch a movie or get drunk. And on an airplane, you can do all three of those things, which is really nice. When we come back on next week, I, you know, so we have this Facebook group where you can join and give feedback to what we're doing on the show. Uh, Just search you know, Murano radio fans and haters. And people are pretty divided about the Anthony Weiner interview that we did yesterday. We have a whole bunch of people that said, I didn't listen to it. I can't believe you had him on. Oh, they must be forcing Frank to have him on. I shut off the radio in disgust. And then a whole bunch of people that think it was the best interview that we've ever done on this show. And one guy, I think it was Joel Ryder, suggested that we do something interesting, which is give Frank, me and me, an interview challenge where I don't know anything about the guest that we're interviewing, and we see how well I do with an interview that of someone that I know nothing about. 
And I got to say, I, I'm pretty intrigued by that idea. And I, I have to think I, I probably wouldn't sound too good because a big part of the reason why I think the interviews that I do sound maybe a little interesting is because I've spent the time necessary to prepare for that interview. But I'll tell you what idea did cross my mind. Maybe, you know, I'm basically next Tuesday coming from the airport to the radio station. Maybe we give, I don't know, whomever, maybe it's Matt Blaze, maybe it's Alex Barnard, maybe it's Philippe, maybe it's Jennifer Grodd. We give whomever, maybe some combination, the license to book anybody they want as guests on the show. And I do no homework into that guest and try to conduct essentially four interviews that day. Because I'm not, you know, I mean, I guess I can prepare a little bit on the airplane. But uh, I don't know. That idea does have an appeal to me. Let me know what you think of that. You can email me or you can weigh in on the Facebook group on that concept. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters and join the Facebook group. And you can participate in the uh, in the discussion there. Hey, it was interesting. Did you see the statement Yesterday, I mentioned Nancy Pelosi's husband getting arrested for drinking and driving. Did you see the statement that her office put out? So it was very, very uh, interesting. And I don't think she could have distanced herself from this anymore. So a spokesperson for Nancy Pelosi said the following. The speaker will not be commenting on this private matter, which occurred while she was on the East Coast. Now, what kind of statement is that? (laughs) That's like, it's still her husband that's getting arrested for drinking and driving. The fact that she was on the East Coast has nothing to do with this. What is she mentioning that for? It's almost like saying, well, if she was on the West Coast, this wouldn't have happened. This crazy husband, who we also found out has quite a history of doing things as a driver. You know, yesterday I asked Anthony Weiner, if you have as much money as Pelosi does, why would you ever drive? Forget about drinking and driving. Why would you ever drive to begin with? Paul Pelosi is a very wealthy guy. If I had as much money as Paul Pelosi, I would have a driver take me everywhere. When I'm drinking, when I'm sober. And now we learn that 50 years ago, Paul Pelosi actually, unfortunately, killed his brother in a traffic accident. So he killed his older brother in a sports car crash in 1957. Apparently they were out for a joy ride. And he killed him. Now... After that, now I I can imagine how traumatic it must be to lose a brother, and I hope I never have to experience that. But after that, don't you think you'd be super careful behind the wheel of a car? After your own poor driving and irresponsibility results in the death of a sibling? All the more reason, once you get millions of dollars... Why would you not always have a driver? I don't get it. I I do not get this at all. Uh, Paul Pelosi, 
has a net worth of about $114 million. $114 million. Can't afford an Uber? I just don't get it. I don't get it. All right, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a bit. Uh, Oh, so what I was going to say is next week, maybe we'll do that show where I don't know any of the guests that are booked, and we'll see how that show sounds. Although I don't want it to sound too good, because then then people are going to think I could do every show like that. We don't want we don't want that, right? Maybe we'll, okay. I'm thinking better of it, but uh, I am going to talk with a hypnotist next week. Named uh, well, I don't want to get into. We'll, you'll, we'll we'll tell you his name when we get closer to it. But I have been fascinated for years with hypnotism, and I've tried three times in the course of my life. Right, three times, maybe two, two times. I've tried twice to be hypnotized. One time was at a Star Trek convention where they do this great stage hypnosis where everybody does wacky things. And I went through the same hypnosis process that everybody else did, and it didn't do anything for me. So I can't figure out why I have never really been able to be hypnotized, but other people are able to get hypnotized no problem. So I'm pretty interested in that. If you have thoughts on that, It'll be part of my preparation for that hypnosis segment. You can email me. Um, And uh, by the way, Debbie Duhame was listening when that trivia person didn't know her name. So uh, she she remains a fan, even though she is not the traffic reporter for our station. It's great on other stations. All right. um, 15 seconds of fame. Next, we'll give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-WABC. Those of you that are on the floor, be sure to try the egg salad, and we'll be back with 15 Seconds of Fame straight ahead. W-A-B-C. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight as andy b sings it there uh and it is time to end this show as we end all shows by giving you an opportunity to speak for 15 seconds on any subject you like uh, just dial us at 800-848-9222 it is time for the other side of midnight this is 15 seconds of fame cheech and howard beach Here's another big Howard Beach. Hello. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Cuz. Joe and Ron Konkama. Hey, Frank. Another great show. I want to also shout out Frankie from Glendale. You're a good friend. I enjoy hanging out with you. Hope to see you at a car show soon. God bless America. 800-848-WABC. Mark in New Haven. Hey, Frank. 
thinking about drinking reminds me of the line from Dean Martin when he said, I feel sorry for people who don't drink because when they wake up in the morning, that's as good as they're going to feel all day. <laughs> True words never spoken. 800-848-9222. Neo on Staten Island. Congratulations to your brother, Nicholas, and to my son, Stuart. We're both getting married on the same day. Many years of happiness to them and their new bride. Absolutely. Mike in New Jersey. In light of the current formula shortage and Father's Day around the corner, a nice gift for a new dad might be a man's ear or a bro with the nursing option, of course. <laughs> That's not bad. 800-848-WABC. Kurt on Staten Island. Hey, Frank. Uh, the interview yesterday with Anthony Wiener was great. All right. Everybody deserves forgiveness. Anybody out there who thinks that they don't because they're not looking at their own selves because everybody has done something to harm someone. Thank you. Lamar in the North Bronx. Okay, Professor Morano. I just want to wish uh, your brother, okay, just want to wish your brother like um, blessings like on his matrimonial. Okay. Thank you, and, Lamar. Uh, Thank you. 800-848-9222. Try on Long Island. Go to Wall Street Growth at Twitter.com slash Wall Street Growth. You'll find links to get a job, a free iPhone, a home with no money down. That's Wall Street Growth. Twitter.com slash Wall Street Growth. Mike in Pennsylvania. Hey, you know, you heard about that covenant in wife? My best friend. Ran off with my wife. I really miss that guy. Ralph in New Jersey Okay, the Joseph Biden China policy is talking the talk, okay Uh, We're going to soon find out when push comes to shove over the Taiwan issue, we can walk the walk, okay, thank you And finally Jimmy in Rockland County all right, let's get this guy. Who cares about lying to the FBI? Get him for the real crime. I'm sure he committed a real crime. Let's go for him for that, right? Sussman or whoever he is. Thank you. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, yes, talking about the verdict in the Michael Sussman case where he, a jury found him not uh, not guilty. So very interesting. Sid Rosenberg is here. He looks ready for action. Uh, so that's uh, So that's interesting. All right. Uh, the WABC Early News coming up with Deb Valentine at 5 o'clock. And the Bernie and Sid show coming up from 6 until 10 featuring Ron DeGay and uh, Congressman Peter King, who's always very interesting. You want to stay in touch with me, you can do so via email, frank.morano at wabcradio.com or via Twitter at Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. I'll be back at 1 a.m. We're going to do Ask Frank Anything. We're going to have denunciations. I believe uh, we're scheduled to talk to the Republican candidate for governor, Harry Wilson. Again, uh, we'll pick his brain on a few other things. And uh, we may have a few other surprises for tomorrow's show as well. Only way to know what it is is to tune in. Frank Morano, good day.